0: Yeah. 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 Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness Podcast. And I cannot believe we're sitting in our the beginning of our podcast room. I was wondering if you're going to bring that up, because yes.
1: this, not only are we recording the intro in the new podcast room, we actually recorded the podcast you're going to hear today in the new podcast room.
0: It, it sounds good in here, yeah. it, because it has all of our gear in it, so it kind yeah. of, uh, it's the natural dampening, dampener. Yeah. We've got a coffee, a
1: rub, we've now our got baseball caps. baseball caps, oh yeah. Go and check out our baseball caps, or embrace your DNA baseball caps on the website. Our mugs, t-shirts, a whole heap of other paraphernalia. Game yeah. seasoning, yeah, and all and whiskey. We've got some whiskey at the and top. Boots,
0: yeah, a whole heap of prizes that we need to give away for the photo competition. Yeah. So yeah, there's been uh, yeah, it's really cool, and I think in the the coming coming month or two, pot- potentially we'll have some actual studio mics here. Potentially,
1: and we mentioned this at the start of the. I think we mentioned it at the start of this podcast, but this place where we're recording has an awesome view because we re- used to record it next door in the office, which you can't really see anything because you're kind of just surrounded by trees. But from here, you can see all the way up into the Angus Glens.
0: You can. I can see where my bees are from here. <laughs> my second lot of bees. And rain coming over the hill. Yeah, It's pretty cool. It is one of the best views in this part of the world.
1: Well, it's just pretty close to our heart because we've lived here most <laughs> yeah. of our lives.
0: But it really is, though. No, it It, is. It's the start of the Highland Fault. That's what we're looking
1: on, all the way north and west. So you are going to be hearing from Dr. Craig McIntyre today. He is a fisheries biologist and the director of the S-District Salmon Fishery Board and the Rivers Fisheries Trust as well, the Esk rivers Fisheries Trust, which I am a trustee on and I have been pretty much since its inception, which I think is almost 10 years ago now. Um, uh, It's going to be a, really intriguing discussion going from salmon farming at the beginning to habitat restoration at the end. We cover the full spectrum.
0: Yeah. It it really is interesting. Yeah. Even
1: if you're not into fishing, this is not a fishing podcast, if you're just interested in the natural world, uh, you're going to enjoy this. You will. Definitely.
0: Yeah. And... And Craig has you know extensive knowledge when it comes yeah. to fish farming and everything else, because that's what he studied.
1: I didn't fully appreciate that. Actually, <laughs> the, the, the initial bit of discussion, I didn't realize just how well-versed and knowledgeable he was on that. So yeah, great to have him on the show.
0: We have a few things on the list.
1: We do. The first one is the winner from the competition two weeks ago, which was to win the very last of our latest edition Hornady Reloading Manuals. It's not quite the last one, because the last one I've kept for myself, because it's what I use and I'm not giving it up. But it's the last one that we're going to give away. And the winner for that was, and I'm really sorry if I butcher your last name, Helen Nikilny. I think is how you say your name. Congratulations, you sent us, we, we asked everybody to send us a picture of you in the countryside with your best friend. Whatever that might be. Dog, person. And we got a horse.
0: I like that. Yeah.
1: Thinking out the box a little bit. She was bit. obviously riding on the back of a horse and it was in a country lane and there was a whole heap of sheep. Obviously, I don't know if she was herding the sheep, but they were all on this road. <laughs> uh, so thank you very much for the entry and you are the winner. So please contact us and we will get the Hornady Reloading Manual sent out to you. Pretty damn and good prize. And of course, we have another competition. Uh, I think we've got so many hats, I think we're going to give away two. Okay, let's give away we're two. A uh, of and- Hornady... Um, Baseball caps. Baseball caps, always yeah. very popular. Yeah, I and have like three or four that I ha- use all the time.
0: And this, these competitions are coming to an end. Yes, of this
1: type, so there will be no more. No. There may be the odd random one, but there's not, sadly, going to be a competition every episode. I don't
0: think. No, we'll definitely have
1: stuff to give away. That but we will, but it not will not at be. this frequency.
0: <laughs> We've given away stuff at halve a rate. Yeah. <laughs> so if you've never
1: taken part in the competitions before. Do it now before it's too late. I think end of, end of July, it'll uh, all be wrapping up. And when we get to that point, we're going to do an explanation about uh, how we're moving forward, or maybe a bit before how we're moving forward with the podcast, but so, really exciting stuff. So
0: how do these two lucky winners get their hands on the Hornady Reloading? Reloading? No, it's not a reloading. No, thing. that was They're two cap. weeks ago. That was two weeks ago. Hornady Baseball cap.
1: Cap. Uh Pretty simple. But we are actually going to ask for some knowledge here. We want to know where is your go-to place... For buying your punting fishing outdoors gear, where do you go physically go to purchase or gear? online or online yeah or online yeah um, anywhere in the world we just want to know so we're going to, we'll put up a post so you can either comment below or feel free to email um,
0: Daryl podcast email? at paceproductionsuk.com. Yeah. Oh, it will be in the description yeah we want to know small or big doesn't matter what it is anywhere in the world we want to know where you go to go and get your outdoor gear and what they supply and things like that. So, yeah, shoot us a message social media or email us and uh,
1: we'll uh, probably pick a winner at random. Yeah, we'll so. Who, who, two people, yeah, two
0: people, two people.
1: So, yes, please. We want to know. So, get entering the competition. That's pretty Easy Even if you good. don't want if you, even if you don't want the hat, and of course you do. You can always give it to a friend. Yeah. Um Patreon. Yes. Do you know what that is? I, do you I don't, know what does? No, I do. <laughs> I do. I do.
0: I uh, do. Been around for a wee while now. Quite a while, I think. Yeah, yeah. it has. Uh, Patreon is a platform that allows people to give money to another individual or, or causes, or causes or company, that uh, that you like. And after, it's kind of like crowdfunding. Kind of, yeah. Mm. And after many years of. Of, We're uh, in year four now, by the way. Four, people. four years of uh, of podcasting. We have we've started a Patreon uh, page, and the reason for doing that is actually it has come from some of our listeners asking how they can support us. So we we decided that we would start a Patreon page because that would be the easiest way if people wanted to support us. And the reason why, um, we, well, you know, the support's amazing because it allows us to do. These shows and do more in-depth shows, uh, spend more time on the editing, and potentially going forward, bringing out more shows. Our our goal is to bring out one one a week. At the start of the year, we told you that things would be changing with the podcast for the better and they have got a new podcast room new studio and we're guests are going to be coming from all over the world and we're going to be doing more recording in person we don't want we don't want to do that many over the the internet or the phone as little as possible and some from
1: the field as well exactly new totally new format for an additional podcast yeah
0: so we want to do some more of the kind of investigative journalism so it's more in the field kind of as you go feel more like a kind of bbc farming today but not quite but
1: more informal than that
0: yeah so this is where this is where it's coming about and we are in the process of uh Big news, as in, uh, with you know what's happening with the podcast. Probably in a, a month, Byron. Yeah, probably. I think uh, so. Maybe but, even next. Maybe even next show. Maybe even the next show. But uh, that aside, we've set up a Patreon platform where people can give money, and we've had uh, three. No- Three people uh, have we only launched it, and we launched it yesterday, and we've also had separate Patreon um, people actually donate money to us directly, and that all goes towards the podcast, Yeah, because to give you an idea of how long it takes, and, and this is the, the other thing, is we always want the podcast to be free. It will always be free. So if you don't want to give money, and you, or you can't afford it, that, that's cool. No problem. There's no problem. It will always be free, but it's for the people that go. You know what? I can spare two quid a month or five pound a month. You know, I, you know, I want to do this. It allows us to bring a better show, do more of them, even fly guests up. If, exactly. it, if it warrants it, yeah, fly guests. If you know, if if we need to go to London, go there is a guest that we have to get on. You know, that means we can spend the forty pounds on the flight to go to London and do the interview in person, and it is way better. So that that's kind of the thinking behind it. And you do get some rewards for, for the Patreon. You do. What, so What are they? So this is um, this is how basically
1: how Patreon works, is it's got a tiered system. So we have one, two, three, four tiers. So if you give up to... It's all in dollars. Uh, because you can't it's change American, it. You can't <laughs> change that. So if you give up to $5 a month, you just are part of the community. You don't physically get anything, but you know that you are helping to support us make the podcast. If you give up to $10 per month, um, you will obviously be part of the community. You will uh, get a podcast shout out for your support. So everybody who is uh, up at that tier, at the start of the shows, we will... Shout out your name, assuming you want to. Or whatever you want us to shout out. Or (laughs) whatever you want to shout out uh, as one of our supporters, and we'll shoot you a podcast sticker. Um, For the next tier, you get everything in the previous tier, but you also get a 5% discount code for our shop, of which there's an increasing amount of stuff on, uh, and a signed limited edition print. And for the next, that's $15 a month, and for the last tier, they've all got cool names, by the way. So the first one is Into the Wilderness Friend. The second one is Conservation Hero. Uh, the fifteen dollar month one is, is Conservation Legend, and the last one is Conservation Hall of Fame, which is twenty five dollars a month, and you get all of the above, plus uh, f- um, preferential invites to any live events that we do, a podcast T shirt, and an Into the Wilderness baseball cap. And those are cool—the baseball cap and
0: the T shirt. That's yeah. worth that's worth it right there. To yeah, sign yes, up for absolutely. the
1: year. So there are all those options. So if you just um, Look for we'll, the put it in the, we'll put it in the description we as well. Uh and if you want to navigate and or have a like an overview, a slightly better overview of the podcast that we have on the list, I have been and I am still updating the podcast page on our website, thepacebrothers.com. So if you go on there now, there's nice pretty pictures and links to the Patreon and links to a few other things related to what we talk about within the podcast. And I'm going to try and make those better. That's one of the things that this is going to allow us to do is spend more time on stuff like that. So I can put links about things that we discuss in there and
0: just flesh out the description on that. So definitely worth checking out the website for it. And like we said, the reason for this is because of the amount of time that it takes. Like, we would love to spend more time on descriptions and things like that, where you go, "Ah, oh, this part of the podcast at minute forty-four, we discuss this." We simply do not have the time because um, to to tell everyone how how long it takes a three hour podcast, let's say, uh, which we have done on many occasion, takes about six to seven hours to edit potentially. Uh, and then on top of that you've still got the three hours of actual podcast that you've that you've recorded so you're looking in terms of work you're looking at at least one day for one podcast one full working day per podcast plus any sort of pre-research some of them don't require it but some do some do so when we're putting out two a month then you're looking at potentially three days three full days a month of just podcast editing
1: and what we might end up doing depending on how everything goes is we might end up actually outsourcing the editing and getting a company who does that to do it for us potentially so that we have more time time. to do recording yes so we'll see
0: so yeah we thought we would share with everyone what what's going on We're, we're open and honest here and that's where that's where the money would would go and go all back into the podcast hundred percent and you know let's we're not living off the <laughs> off the proceeds of the podcast it's it just doesn't happen but uh yeah but we yeah we
1: we appreciate everybody who listens which is more every month. So it welcome if you're new. Y- welcome if you and are. And go and new. check our Patreon.
0: Yes. Uh, and, and, and I was going to say, and we have like some of the most awesome listeners because you look at the money that has been raised from the the charities oh, work over the last couple of years that we've we've done. Oh yeah. I've actually h- got the numbers a on huge this, amount though. has come through podcast the podcast. So, so you, you guys know, are awesome. You guys are absolutely amazing by giving us money for charities that which we you know we make sure the we money goes to the right yeah. places. And uh, now we're holding the food ball up now. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh,
1: so actually, I have the numbers now. For, yeah. uh, most people who are regular listeners will know that we were running an auction to raise money for uh, pangolin conservation. And I finally added up all of the money that uh, has come in
0: from the auctions.
1: And it was £2,400.
0: £2,400. How amazing is that? And to put it into perspective, Scott Country did us such an amazing deal on... Um, on the, the wildlife camera cameras traps, or eight camera traps and the thermal imaging unit, which they part sponsored that we still have quite a large chunk of that. Well, money. We
1: still have 1700 pounds in cash. Uh, and I messaged uh, the professor as part of the African penguin working group and Francois the other day and said, look, I've added it all up. This is what we spent with the gear that we had to buy that I brought over to you guys. And we've got 1700 pounds sitting in the bank account that is yours Tell us what you want. Do you you want the money or do you want us to get more equipment, like try and get some deals to get more equipment for you? So they're thinking about what they need to work on the ground now. But what a difference (laughs) it's going to make. And it already is.
0: By the way, our goal was to set them up with camera traps. traps. (laughs) That was it. And we set them up with camera traps, a thermal imaging unit, and we still have loads of money left over. Like that's the best case scenario. Yeah. So yeah, really
1: great everybody who spent money on that and very importantly every uh every single either individual or company who put up the items to actually auction. Yeah, without without that it's not possible. It's not possible. And I will be um putting a new page on the website which is dedicated to all of the the links or stuff or fundraising that we do for conservation. And all of the details of everybody who helps out in that is
0: going to be there. So a list of all the companies that gave us products will be on there too. Yeah. I just realized we didn't actually read out the Patreon page. How do you get to it? Do you know what? I actually, it actually will be in the description. It's, but I, it's, I
1: think you can just search it. So when you're on Patreon, you can search and you can find it. How but do you, how do you it spell is, Patreon? Is it, just- it is um, P-A-T-R-E-O-N... And then uh, .com forward slash Pace Brothers. There you have it. I think. I'm trying to find it. We'll out. have a link on our website, yeah. boy. Yeah, yeah. It's already on the website. So if you go onto the website and go onto the podcast page of our website, com, you will see there's actually a Patreon logo. And if you click it, it takes you straight ah, there. There you have it. Already one step ahead. of ah, the curve. Okay. Um, two other things that I want to mention just before we jump into this podcast is the next volume of Modern Huntsman. Is going to it's print. Tyler is literally fly- as we speak. Tyler, the, the editor in chief, is flying to the printer to get the first proof. I love it. Well, we've 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 had a scroll through it uh, this morning, actually. Yes, we the have the final version,
0: and it's going to blow you away. It's looking great. It's looking. G- we've had lots of orders of volume two over the space, and of a lot of pre-orders of volume 3. Of, yeah, over the last few weeks. And like we said, get your orders of volume two in now. Three. Because, sorry, no two. Oh, two. And three, obviously, mm. because uh, we've sold out volume one, and we don't know when the next batch is coming of volume one. So you don't want to be in that situation with no. volume two. There are some incredible stories, and writers, and, and photography is, is going to blow you uh, away. Outstanding. Uh,
1: yeah, I've, I can't wait. I'm sure very soon, in the probably in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be some imagery out from within the book, so we can actually show you what it's going to look like. Um, So I'm excited to share that with you. But
0: I mean, if you like the first two and you like the imagery, you're going to love love the next one.
1: And here's the cool thing. Quite a lot of guests that we've had on in the last 12 months are in this next volume. So Brett Sang, he has a great article in it. Eduardo? Um, I'm not sure if Eduardo, no, Eduardo's not in this one. There's pictures of him, though. um, uh, Lost my train of thought there. Jack Evans from Bear Trust, which is he was in the podcast two weeks ago. He has an amazing article in there all about delisting and grizzly bears. So there's some fantastic people in
2: there. Yeah.
1: So I can't wait to share it with everyone. And the last thing that I wanted to mention was, if you hadn't seen already, uh, Botswana last week reopened elephant hunting
0: again. It did indeed.
1: Uh, Now, the details of this I am definitely going to bring you. I think we, we probably do need to do a news item, and I can run through and flesh that out.
0: Maybe next week.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe in a week's time. And I'm probably going to be over there fairly soon as well, um, getting some interviews and audio from the field. And it makes more sense to actually do that from the ground. It's, I mean, it's largely been celebrated by the hunting community um, and it hasn't been celebrated by pretty much everyone else.
0: The president of the Botswana basically told the Europeans to go and shut up and look after their own place. Yeah. Because he said, why do you care so much about an elephant when there is loads of other things to care about basically. He's and it's highly regulated.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's not the way that it's been portrayed negatively in the media is that there's going to be sort of a mass a mass <laughs> slaughter. unregulated slaughter of elephants in Botswana, which is so far from the truth. Uh it, it's going to be incredibly restricted
0: and done for all of the right reasons for All the the stats, we will bring them, but all the stats are online of the reasons. Yeah. yeah. So the president put up exactly the numbers of of the reasoning behind the current population,
1: how much they want to, um, how they're going to select the animals, the the negative impact of high densities of elephants in areas. It's all there. In fact, it's to some extent stuff that I covered in the podcast that I was interviewed on. Yes. uh, The Talk Nerdy podcast, which I know a lot of you have listened to and you should go and check out if you haven't. It was out last week. Um but yeah, we'll we'll bring more detail of that in the in the coming weeks and certainly while I'm over there again.
0: I've just been in Germany. Oh yeah. Just just come back. Whirlwind. Uh, yeah, it was. It was yeah, it was I was it was, it was, it was, it was a bloody tiring few days. Uh, uh, that that's do, Robux for you. Oh Horrendously. The one day I was so tired. Uh, did you, f- you didn't nod off in the high no, seat? I did you? No, I didn't actually. You can't. It's easily done. But when you're working, know, if you nod off, you would miss. Like if I'd fallen asleep, then the wild boar that would was there for maybe a good eight seconds yeah. would have been missed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was good. It was. I was doing filming and photography over there. A beautiful part of Germany. I don't actually know where. It was where did you yet. fly into? Uh, Düsseldorf. And then it was a place called Simmer. It's in the middle of Germany. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it was a good, a good few days. And then the week before, like I mentioned on the previous podcast, but right at the end, the week before, I was doing thermal imaging with a drone for the whole week for the German Game Conservancy. But in Scotland. But in Scotland. Yeah. And, yeah, we found quite a lot of nests. Uh, on the first night, I think we... I wrote it down in my book, actually. On the first night, it was 11 nests we found. Including Golden Plover and Curly, right? Yes, which they've only ever found... They've Before I found the Golden Plover nest, they'd only ever found two other nests in five years. So I found the third. with the, And they're really hard to see. The eggs are tiny in them. But using that technique, which we've... Kind of mastered now of looking. You can you get you get an eye for it of what to look for. It's successful, and the the German Game Conservancy certainly find it an, a valuable asset.
1: That's good, interesting work. Yeah.
0: Well, we're yet to find. Well, I'm yet to see anyone else do this kind of wildlife uh, surveying using this technology. Hmm. Maybe more in the future. Maybe. It's quite expensive, that's the problem.
2: Yeah.
1: Anything else before we let people jump into the show?
0: No, I was trying to think, what are we up to in the next few weeks?
1: Um, Tidying up a few projects. I'm going to try and get some of the pictures out from my trip to Africa. I've just started to edit some of them. And hopefully some video. I just hope I'm going to have enough time to put some video together. Because it wasn't for anybody or anything specifically, but I took a whole heap of video content for future projects and just to bank some stuff, but I'd like to share a little bit of it with people. So um, I'm going to try and edit something together and I'm actually in the process of cutting the um, a slightly more intricate in the field podcast together from all the pangolin conversation we had in the bush. That'll be good. I'm uh, which I'm looking forward to doing and I've never done it like that before. It's quite a lot of work, but it's going to be... I'm, I'm really looking forward. To it. There's going to be music and... It's <laughs> going to be like editing a film. See that. Yeah, so... That's gonna be me before probably heading back to Africa fairly soon. Um for a pretty big project which
0: I won't talk about now but I'll probably talk about it on the next show or maybe when we do the news. I was gonna say thank you to all the people that have been buying the seasoning. We've mm. had we've sent out so much seasoning in the last uh, week. And if you don't know what we're talking about, we have just brought out some game seasoning on all 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 purpose game seasoning Called- which gunpowder. And we have actually been developing it for a year with uh, Joe from Game Changer Barbecue and uh, it's been going down really well. I had a message from uh, Hungary yesterday asking, can we send some there? We will send it anywhere, but you just need to, I I don't see any issues with it being sent abroad because it's kind of, raw I think we have some already being sent being sent rewards so. so I don't see any problems with that at all the only thing I would add and our way around this in the future is is that the postage and packaging is I would say relatively expensive but we have no way around that so like the seasoning um, the seasoning is the price and then it's, I think it's £3.50 for postage and packaging. Mm-hmm. But we're not making any money from that. That is the cost. Yeah. It costs £2.80 to send it, and then the rest is the packaging. Uh, and the way around it in the future is that we're going to be bringing out um, a line of seasonings, like four of them, and we, we would be able to send all four for £2.80. Yeah, you can, send, you can send two kilos. Or buy more stuff or, from or the I was shop. Say, <laughs> or you could just buy more from the, the shop, and we're going to have little refill packets which will hopefully be posted for cheaper yeah so, it should be so yeah we're 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 trying to navigate that to make it as cheap as possible for people because and packaging is the killer of all items. small especially small small items. items uh the only way around it is like byron said is you can order up to t- two kilos of stuff for the, exactly the same um price yeah uh, our shop works out for you you don't need to <laughs> you <laughs> you don't just sit there with a cow and add it up, up um, how yeah. many kilos am i at yeah. now
1: and um, with that said, I think we'll let you jump into the show. Well, we'll welcome you to the show, Craig. Welcome to the Interworldness Podcast. Uh, it's great to have you on. I was just thinking the other day when we were saying um, we're going to get try and get you on the podcast – was when we first met, and it was we'd through. I think Andrew Graham Stewart he had spoken to you, and arranged us to come and interview you for the film about
0: Loch Marie that we made. Absolutely, which I think
1: was four years ago. And
0: I met you on the film in Loch Maree because it was edited here, and I saw you loads of times. So when I <laughs> when eventually I did meet you in real life, I felt like I'd already. <laughs> yeah, met and that you. was that
3: was at the launch at the Scottish yeah, Parliament yeah. as well, wasn't it?
2: Yeah,
1: in Hollywood, no in less. In Hollywood, yeah, it was yeah. very good. Mm. what was that um, I mean you have to cast your mind back a little bit now was that um, two how many years no I think it was three years ago you know that yeah. it could be longer go- time goes no,
3: it was, well. It was, it was four years ago when we filmed it
1: yeah <laughs> it's not been
3: four years no <laughs> sorry three years three years three ago when we filmed yeah, three yeah. bit years and then two years ago since the launch mm. just over two years
1: uh, at that point in time you were involved with which organisation on the other coast of Scotland? I
3: was involved with the Argyle Fisheries Trust okay. and District Salmon Fishery mm-hmm. Board.
1: So, what was the what was the connect with you f- uh, from Andrew for being involved in that film that we did about Lochmarie?
3: Well, my degree at university was fish farming. And then I worked in the Argyle Fisheries Trust, where we, there's an awful lot of aquaculture. Mm-hmm. So, I spent an awful lot of time dealing with the impacts of aquaculture on wild fish. I and I think that they wanted when Andrew Graham Stewart asked me to take part in the film, they wanted somebody who had a doctorate. So I had a doctorate in, in aquaculture. So at uh, least it sounded like you knew what you were talking uh, about. Dr. Craig McIntyre. <laughs> it makes all the difference. Um and also I wasn't intimately involved with that area, so I was I was more about the, the general effects of aquaculture. So it was a
1: bit more impartial, just what are the effects? Yeah. Here's the evidence, we know as it stands. Yes.
3: Yeah.
0: So, so you your your degree was Purely fish farming. Yes.
1: Yeah. It was. Fish I, didn't even, I didn't
0: even know you could do that. So, what that. did
1: you do as an undergrad? As a matter of interest.
0: Aquaculture. Uh,
1: it was aquaculture. At okay. Stirling University. At Stirling, where I, where I studied, yeah, but exactly. not aquaculture. No, well,
3: I started yeah. off doing marine biology, ah. and uh, the, the opportunities were a lot better in the aquaculture department at the Institute. It's quite a good department, though, at Stirling. It's, yeah, very good.
1: Plenty yeah. of stuff in the pond to go and look at as well. well I, I think the aquaculture <laughs> department, then, whoever it is that heads it up, is responsible for all the species that are in that lake.
3: Maybe in, in the past, well, maybe you. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. I, I know, yeah, there's, it's... Um, it's coarse fish in there. there's pike. There's and pike roach and there's and some
1: giant goldfish, like yeah. the size of whales. <laughs> yeah, it's, it
3: was all those experiments that they were doing in the genetics department, and then they just released them all into the <laughs> pond. <laughs>
1: anyway, so yeah, so that uh, undergrad, and then what was your uh, what was your process after that? Did you go and work, or did you go straight on and study?
3: I went straight to do a PhD, and uh, I did, the opportunity was there to do fish welfare and water quality, mm. and it was just two areas that I happened to be interested in. and Went through quite a large interview process. There was a lot of applicants to get into the PhD. to get into the PhD. Yeah, it was funded by the British Trout Association. Wow! So it was all to do with rainbow trout. I, I think I visited just about every single rainbow trout farm in the UK. I did not know
1: <laughs> there was a British Trout Association. Yeah,
3: it's the counterpart to the Salmon Scottish Salmon Producers Organisation. Huh. But I uh, mean, they're mainly active down in England. Okay. but uh, That's where there's a lot more trout farms. Uh, but it's a lot more commercialised in Scotland. They have the bigger farms.
1: But you're talking about for, for food? Yes. Yeah, oh no, rather... for
3: food and for restocking. Oh really? Yeah, so quite often you go to uh, salmon farms and they had they have the fish that they're producing for the table, they call it, and then they have the fish that they're producing for restocking, mm. where the focus is on producing good quality fins rather than having a good growth.
1: Ah, uh, interesting. Hmm. Huh. So that makes perfect sense why you were involved in the fish farm aspect of it in terms of research then, because that Absolutely. is 100% tied into what they're interested in.
3: Yes, yeah, it is. And I think I, I'd worked with the fish farmers as well, I knew a lot of them, but I um, also understand that the way they work. And, I'd, and then I'd, I'd looked in detail about sea lice mm-hmm. issues, that, which is the main impact on wild fish. With so, the fish farms.
1: Give us a little rundown about that discussion that we were we were having, uh, you know, those couple of years ago, and and what you were trying to get across in terms of the impact of fish farms. Because it's
0: hard in a film when you've only got how long is it it's six seven six, minutes six or something, minutes, yeah. and you've only got a short piece to make it as concise as possible. And it's also very topical <laughs> it, right now. You know, the fish
1: farms are getting a pretty hard time, I'd say, in, in the press. I'm, I'm not making judgment either way, just at this moment in time, but. What we like to do is try and have as best as we can, you know, a level-headed, honest discussion about what do we know? What, what are the facts that we c- that we can make our decisions on?
3: I think that the main issue at that time, and it's, it's still going on actually, is we know that salmon aquaculture causes an explosion in the sea lice populations. Sea lice are naturally endemic to the area, I mean, it's it's often seen, especially on the east coast, when you get a fresh fresh run fish coming it's in, like and a it's got prize, sea lice on it? it. It's
2: like, it's it's like getting it's a salmon,
3: salmon with a gold medal on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas on the west coast, when you see a fish coming in with fifty or sixty sea lice on them, it's just it's, it's a death sentence for that fish, and it feels very feels very different. Uh, so we know that sea lice are there naturally, but fish farms trap. Uh, uh, trapped trap salmon in their cages and it causes an explosion in the numbers of sea lice the back, in the levels in the sea. The sea lice then spread into the sea where they infect wild fish that are passing through. So there could be salmon smokes as they're heading out to sea. So these small fish are maybe 12-13 centimetres long. They're heading out for a, a journey that's going to t- cost, take them, you know, carry them for thousands of miles and they're picking up these sea lice and they can't get rid of them because they can't enter fresh water where the sea lice will knock off. And drop off. Yeah. So these sea lice then are latched onto these, these poor little smolts. They head out to sea and many of them will die because they're simply... Just the burden. Uh-huh, ah, yeah, just the burden. And the stress. They'll, they'll get eaten. They'll get eaten from the outside, yeah. basically. And it will allow other secondary infections to mm-hmm.
1: come in. Do they actually feed
3: on the blood? They feed on the skin.
1: It's the skin,
3: yeah, okay, the which skin. allows infection in. To, uh-huh, so that they'll go through the mucus, they'll take off the mucus, which covers the fish, keeps them healthy. then They will graze on the skin, uh, and it allows infections to come in. And then, but some they can be so compromised, they can have so many lice on them. I've seen some horrendous yeah. pictures. Yeah. yeah, well, I've I've seen the fish. Yeah, and it's it's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. This,
0: so, I mean, this is this is undeniable. You know, the fish farms admit admit that this is this is an issue. The, the the
3: lice problem. They certain farms admit that they do create lots and lots of background levels of lice. What they have been arguing is that it doesn't affect the population of wild fish.
1: Okay,
3: that's and that's where we've come into dispute with the fish farmers. That what we were trying to get when we were filming three years ago. What we were trying to get across was that the regulatory system is failing because there are no regulatory powers for Marine Scotland or for the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency to protect wild fish, and that differs from just about every fish farming area in the the world, actually. I was, a way
0: to just ask you, and if you knew if if that was different in different parts of the world, but you've just answered it.
3: Well, take Norway, for example, um, they have specific limits on the number of lice that a farm can have, but they also measure the wild fish populations, and if the impact gets above a certain level, the farm has to close. So mm.
0: you've, ha- I mean, this this is a crazy situation because we have a large amount of Norwegian fish farm owned uh, on our west coast. Who they know it's wrong because they're doing in where they're based in Norway, they're not allowed to do it yet. They do it here because they get away with it. Yeah, it's not because, regu- the, because the regulation because the regulation is not correct. Yeah.
1: So to some extent, just to play a devil's advocate, you can't blame someone for working within the regulatory framework that exists. I, Where's the issue? Is it a regu- is they,
3: a regulation issue? It, it's, it's a regulation issue, but it's also a responsibility issue. Yeah, there's a moral yeah. issue there There as is well. a moral issue. <laughs> yeah. But also, if, if you look at how the salmon... Farm farm salmon is marketed. Hmm. You know, they make a big issue about the low environmental impact. They're growing in fresh, fresh, beautiful, clean waters. I mean, the animal welfare is is a big
1: thing that we can touch on as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, that was obviously my area. But so I, they they do have a moral responsibility, and, and they make a big thing about being good neighbors, and often in many cases they are and, the, and many farms don't have any impact but lots of farms do have impacts and they're not being good neighbours
0: but that's that's because there is certain farms which is, I mean you can look at it on a map which are not in the correct position they shouldn't be where they are and if they had been moved or thought about a bit more then the impact would be lower
3: it, It's, but it goes beyond that so yeah you're absolutely right they're in the wrong location but they're also producing lots and lots of lice yeah, so it tends too to many too, far, too, far too many yeah. lice, yeah And it is having an impact on the wild.
0: Are are the stocking density numbers in the farms greater here than they are in other places? No, no, they're about the same.
3: It's not a stocking issue. No, it's not. the 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 amount of the the biomass of fish that they can have on the farms are very tightly regulated. Okay. But the amount of space that the the nets have, the the densities are quite low. Actually, but. yeah, it's just, the, it's just the number of cages, the number of nets okay. and the number of farms. Yeah.
1: So where have we got to from when that film was made, which was to highlight the issue of primarily one particular farm on one system, um, the Loch Marie system? Three years has passed since then. What's kind of happened in the interim? We've had a couple of podcasts on it. Corrin was on. We had a very extensive, lengthy podcast uh, with him about it, so we did dive in in some detail, but what have the changes been that you've seen over the last few years, and are we seeing more changes it does certainly seems to me if you look at the sort of the media coverage of it in even like the last six months
0: well a lot of noise came of the b b c panorama thing that was only what a week ago two weeks ago, yep,
1: and then a little bit off the film we did uh with mm-hmm. that sir david um Narrated, yes, because um, that was in the papers. So. Well, they only picked up on the the, the fish, fish farm part thing, of it, yeah, which was the
0: probably <laughs> the smallest. It was it was mentioned once in the whole thing. That wasn't an anti fish. It farming wasn't an anti fish farm thing, but that's what all the papers picked up on. Yeah, I think
3: I was sitting when that was aired at the Fisheries Management Scotland conference. Which one? The 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 David Attenborough oh, really? film. I was sitting next to a fish farmer. Yeah. And he was very uncomfortable. Was it? he? He focused in on the fish farms. He did. Uh-huh, but it was, a,
1: it was one thing okay. in a list of like five or six it was. effects.
3: It was. I think what what has changed, what the biggest thing for me is that the, the parliament has cottoned on to this. So there's been two parliamentary reviews. There's one from the, um, was it, Rural Connectivity Committee and there's one from the Environmental and Climate Change Committee. They've had two separate reviews. And both of them have concluded that the status quo cannot be allowed to continue. So So
1: there's an acknowledgement that it's negatively affecting the external environment.
3: And also that there are large gaps in the regulation. And I think that that is absolutely clear, that there are large gaps. There's no legislation to protect wild fish. There's only legislation to protect... The welfare of the farmed fish,
0: mm. which is crazy, because you think that the natural resource should always come first before you shove in something—a foreign, yeah. well, not foreign, but you know, something an artificial, an artificial, an artificial environment. environment the natural resource should be protected.
3: Yep. Yeah. I th- but I think it, it's a bit of a. The industry is a bit of a darling of the, of of the government because it's the it's the fastest growing yeah. industry in Scotland,
0: and and you you see this when any uh, ar- argument comes up the first thing that typically is mentioned is the economical um the benefits, benefits, of benefits of it in in Scotland and particularly the rural employment that typically is the first thing they bring up but you know you can very easily counter argue that and say you know is is the can't, des- is the destruction of a whole ecosystem worth a few hundred jobs
3: economics can't trump all else <laughs> and the the frustrating thing for us is it's unnecessary Hmm. There are many farms that run very, very, very well. well. They're they in the right place. They have a limited impact on the seabed, which is one of the big, the, the big issues. And It's, it's in, the waste on the, in the waste bottom. On the bottom. And, and to be fair to the Environmental Protection Agency, we have, Scotland has the tightest regulations in the world for the seabed. Okay. They're fantastic. So we're protecting crabs and polychaete worms and uh, starfish, so, we're not protecting salmon. It's the mid So, we're really bad at the yeah. mid-water stuff. Yeah, because it's difficult to measure. It's difficult to monitor because fish move around. Yeah, yeah. Starfish will be a little stunted. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, I've got a question then, <clears throat> because I've stopped eating salmon. I Good haven't mind. eaten salmon for years. I'm the same. And the primary reason for that is that, uh, well, one, in most rivers, you can't kill the fish that you catch anymore, which is fine. So, you know, that avenue is gone for me. Uh, but, secondly, I can't buy fish from a fish farm that I can feel good about. Is there a list of fish farms that exist right now that I can say, I do not mind buying it from this fish farm because I know that they're ticking all the boxes and they're not negatively affecting the environment and the wild fish because if there was a list, I would buy salmon from them if I knew that the the welfare of the fish and everything was you know, up to spec. But as it stands right now, I don't know where to look to find that because I would love to eat salmon again, but at the moment I'm not comfortable eating it because of everything we've discussed. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I don't eat farmed salmon either. No. And I, f- I felt it would be hypocritical if I was criticising them and then yeah. I was consuming their product. No, there's not, because I think th- th- there's no list. There's no mm. list to say, if you buy from this company, it's fine because each company has got good sites and bad sites. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. And it's, there's a little bit of a legacy issue going on there about sites that they used to have in from 30, 40 years ago that they'd bought, that they're in the wrong place. But they ha- they haven't got the flexibility Scotland has got a capacity issue with salmon farming that Norway doesn't. You know, said, well, because they've
1: got a million fjords.
3: They've got a million fjords, and when I said earlier that a farm would get shut if they were having an impact on wild fish, it's not a problem because they just go and move to another farm. Okay, that's easy. Yeah. They can't do that in Scotland, no. and maybe that's why yeah. they resist it so much, so much more about the impacts on wild fish. Uh, so no, there is there is no. Um, List to say that these. Okay, farms well, I just okay. have to continue not eating salmon. Then. Yeah, I think you could you could download the data
1: and try and figure out and yourself. try and figure
3: it out yourself. But it doesn't give you the whole picture. <laughs> no.
1: And also, I'd be very hungry by the time I worked it out. Yeah, I
3: would uh, <laughs> stick to stick to lamb.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a frustrating one. That, and that's what I always say to people. And you know, until we can be in a position where we're we're comfortable with the impact, or it's not negatively impacting anymore, our our environment and our wild stocks just stop eating salmon mm. it's not that difficult to do it's a it's a pretty much a luxury you know eating salmon
3: it, it, it used to be a luxury I can remember when it was a luxury now it's been sold as an everyday meal and okay, people well, are yeah. eating it in huge numbers and it's and it's almost like oh we'll just have salmon tonight and we'll have a couple of fillets and it hasn't but the the impact's on has the environment yeah. yeah but you, you almost have a you know with, with terrestrial farming you can see the cows you can see you can see when cows aren't healthy yeah you can see sheep if they're not looking well. You can't generally see the salmon, no. and you can't see the impacts because they're quite subtle.
1: And once once it's filleted and you've got this pink slab yeah, look, of meat, you don't know fine. what it
0: looked like on the outside. We, we were discussing on the day, and the way that we have like figured out fish farming, the best way to describe it is it's the way that battery chicken farming was like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, with you know, too many chickens in a cage, welfare massive welfare issues and, and then it all got regulated. The only thing with that was that there was no uh, there was no external impact no. on
3: that. But no. yeah, there, there is it, no, a big I, animal I'm welfare. T- I'm issue. talking about a welfare issue yeah. here. Yeah. But I think with with salmon farming, a lot of the issues come to you can't you can't control your environment very well. Yeah. So if the water temperature goes up and you have an algal bloom, at the, at the moment they've got huge issues in Norway to do with algal blooms. Yeah, it was blooms. in the paper yesterday. Yeah, exactly. And eight million salmon killed. Or Kill, something oh, yeah, I did see that. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that yeah, was yeah. just like
1: very quickly. Ah, like but it's, yeah. but
3: it, it happens on the west coast as well. But it's not, it's, it's not as extensive, I think, and uh, it's not as well reported. But you do get the algal blooms. You have issues with as it's getting warmer. This there's, there's a, an organism that's turned up that causes amoebic gill disease. Huh. And that is very widespread across the whole of the West Coast. And that's only come up in the last six or seven years. So
1: can they not absorb the oxygen through the gills anymore? They
3: struggle with the, to absorb the oxygen. But the the knock-on effect is that be, um, you can't stress the fish out. So it means you can't treat them for sea lice. <sighs> and so they get lots and lots of sea lice. And I think that's what happened um, with Corrin's, the, the footage that Corrin took mm-hmm. in uh, Loch Rogue in, on Lewis, that though they, they couldn't get in and treat those fish because they were struggling so much with Amoebic Gill disease. The sea lice get out of control and then you have these massive impacts that are very visual on wild fish.
0: But the the algal, algal bloom problem, it's probably something that's only going to get worse because it, it is getting warmer. You can't thing. It's a, it's a temperature deny, thing. It? A temperature yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. algae thrives in warm, stillish water. Yeah. And uh, well, well that, We even that, see it in our freshwater yeah. here in the summers. Uh, <laughs> so it is a problem that's going to continue to get worse. So what does that mean? They have to move the fish farms further north?
3: <laughs> they have to move them offshore and uh, self-contained. Yeah. have to be. I was going to ask you about that yeah.
1: self-contained. But just before we get to self-containment, I was just thinking as a, a comparison here. We we're talking about all these, you know, eight thousand fish lost, and we're talking about tens and hundreds of thousands of fish across fish farms here and in Norway that die every year mm-hmm. and are put in. Holes in the ground, I think, probably. Some, some Can you imagine some, if that was?
0: Some, sh- some do get processed for fuel, I think, from my okay. understanding. But, but still, biofuel or something.
1: Think of this comparison for a minute. Hundreds of thousands of sheep and and cattle die in Scotland every year. Mm-hmm. If if that was, that doesn't happen, and we put them in holes or turn them into fuel, would we be okay with that?
3: Well, we had it with the. BSE. Yeah. Well, that, well, that, that was a... fish foot and mouth. Sorry, that was like
1: right a... That's not... A, that wasn't an every year thing. That was a... But, the, but it, it is was every year with the fish farm.
3: But it industry. is every year it with the is fish is farm. Year, yeah. But would
1: we be comfortable with that if that was the way our agriculture ran? It's because it's a no. fish. No, yeah. we, we wouldn't be comfortable with
3: it. It is. F- no. it, it's a fish. And this is one of the issues uh, with fish is people don't empathise or relate to fish. 100%. I did fish welfare. That was my PhD on fish welfare and I know that fish are sentient and there are possibilities which means that they can experience emotions so they can experience fear and I know that there are certain fish that display signs of almost consciousness they're almost uh there's some of them are so smart um so but the main thing from a welfare point of view is that they experience fear so it's not just that they detect pain it's also that they can anticipate pain and that's been shown scientifically with experiments. So, so there are but, papers but, on that. Yeah, there are, there are. And this is going back 10 years when I was at university. So, But we know that. And welfare the welfare of the, the animals is very important. If you speak to any fish farmer, they'll talk about happy fish. Mm. And it's just that they, they know when their fish are happy. Now, people don't think that about fish. And I've met a number of people who say they're vegetarians, but they eat fish. <laughs> Why are they vegetarian? They don't like animals suffering, yeah. but they'll eat fish, and especially salmon. <laughs> And it's yeah. and so the, the, obviously the message isn't getting across, or people just don't want to know. I think is probably the biggest thing.
0: I, I I've I've said it for a well, long time. Basically, I, since I, we've been doing this podcast, I don't <laughs> distinguish between species, fish or whatever. I've spent a lot of time underwater diving. That I used to do it as a job. I love watching the fish. I love all the creatures under there. Um, and don't get me wrong; some of them are really tasty. Uh, but I've never got the distinguish when people go, oh, well, it's only a fish. I've never, I've never got that because it's still an awesome creature, and they have a bloody hard time. <laughs> you know, can you imagine being a tiny little fish trying to survive with all these things? Not don't take humans out of the equation. Everything just else just trying to eat, everything you. else <laughs> trying to eat you yeah. to grow to a big fish. It's incredible the fact that they, you know, yeah. the journey they have to take. Insects as well. Big fan of insects. <laughs>
3: I don't think they're sentient. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't
0: think so. But the the point is, is but, but yeah,
3: I mean, I think for for me, I mean, the you're comparing terrestrial animals with uh, with with fish. The 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 big thing when you're farming them is to give them a good life and then a quick death. Yeah, yeah. just like Not we with try to do with all agriculture. Yeah, we do, yeah. and uh, and it, and it is. I mean, there's an awful lot of effort put into it. The Humane and Slaughter Association, and to give it, into working out how best to kill the fish. How do the, they kill the? Fish? They, um, Paralyse them in water first. I think they, they, they cool down the water and then the exsanguination is the best way. So, either, so they'll, they'll get stunned and then they'll get, they'll get gills cut. Yeah. Yeah, that's the quickest way. So it's it's, it's almost the same as terrestrial animals, actually. Yes,
0: it is,
2: yeah.
1: Hmm. Uh, you mentioned closed containment. Now, that's the yes. other thing that comes up. All our problems would be solved if everything was just closed containment. That's the, the mindset that yeah. a lot of people have. Just explain the difference for people who don't know and is it viable is that the direction we should go
3: okay the traditionally in Scotland salmon are farmed in open net cages so it's just basically a large net in the sea um, Sea seawater can pass in and out freely there's nothing to stop it uh, and that, and then you can transfer diseases and other organisms parasites and such fu- and such like and that's where we've come to a lot of, that's where we've had a lot of the problems with salmon aquaculture uh closed containment is basically a, a pod of some sort that has a recirculation system built into it. So they'll take water from the depths. Uh, so there's no, there'll be very few parasites in it. And then it's pumped up and it's recycled in the pod. So you can grow the, you can grow salmon at sea. So the idea is you could have these at sea. So they're like floating pods. Floating pods, yeah. yeah. So they can be out at sea. Uh and um. Yeah, the fish the fish would be there. They wouldn't interact with any of the wild. The world. It's the Norwegian government is pouring hundreds of millions of pounds, krona, whatever, into this. I I think it is the future of salmon farming. I think if salmon farming is going to grow, and the Scottish government has targets to double the current production, uh, the only way they will achieve that is with. With Close that, containment, that system.
0: but from from uh, an economical point of view for the fish farms, it's it's a high outlay for them, but reduced potential food, medicine, all these mm-hmm. things for them.
3: Yeah, so they'll be able to control everything. It will be. I think at the moment the the, the engineering isn't quite there yet. There's lots of different um, discussions. So what you could have is you could have like a, a an oil tanker, convert that into a fish farm. Yes or even an oil rig and you can people talking about you could you could grow the fish and well this has been muted, but i think at the moment the mo- the one that's most likely it looks a bit like an egg mm. floating out at sea and I you think could I've have a series it, yeah. yeah you could have a so you series. we have a little something.
1: bit above the surface the rest is below yeah, yeah.
3: so i think the the, the way that the, the scottish industry is looking at this is the norwegian government are making all the the investment Let's let them go on with it, and then <laughs> just use the research. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, they are most of them are Norwegian-owned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot of them are. So, yeah, it would make sense. But but we, we just the, need, sure
0: the Scottish government will have no complaints about them uh, <laughs> spending the yeah, money. Uh, but absolutely. we need the
1: regulation in place at a government level to inf- to make sure that when the technology is viable, that it's enforced. Yes, that it's utilised.
3: I, I think a, a lot of the, I think a lot of the issues from the wild fish point of view. Mm. Would be we just do not have any confidence that if a farm uh, loses control of its sea lice, that anything is going to happen. You can you can still have a situation. Anything is going to happen to, to the farm. To, to the farm, yes, mm. absolutely. So you you have there was a crazy situation a few years ago when a fish farm brought in a, a thermolyser. So they were they heat the water to knock the sea lice off the fish.
1: I didn't know. I didn't know they'd fall off for
3: temperature. Yep, they huh. would. So they could have a, a thermalizer and what's the other? That's like a stunner or something like that. Okay. And it got a, a kind of brush, but the thermalizer and what? There was a mistake, and the the operator cooked about twenty thousand salmon. They Oof. killed them instead of treating them. It was a mistake with, and the fish health inspector went out to the farm. They they investigated. They looked. They found that there were signs that the sea lice on the farm were as were resistant to every known chemical, and the the chemical the sea lice levels on the farm were massive, and the farm was rated as safe. (laughs) It's fine. So it's just the it's just not there just now. the regulation is just not there to protect wild fish. You're
0: doing everything wrong, but you're all good, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't exactly. give you Which any confidence. Great. You does killed it?
3: twenty thousand fish you cooked you cooked your own stock <laughs> before you killed them, and uh yeah, but it's okay so i think if even if the legislation changed and we could have some confidence that if a farm did lose control that something was done about it. I think from a wild fish point of view, that would help an awful lot and it wouldn't be a huge thing to do. But for some reason, it's just not happened yet.
0: And it doesn't help that now, because of the medicine that the the sea lice are being given, they're now becoming extremely resistant to everything.
3: There, there are signs of it in certain areas, yep. So, yeah, the, the current and, and it's also the impact on the on um, things like longestines and crabs okay, and, yeah. and uh, lobster uh, we're starting because well, it's the, chemical it's the same chemical yeah it is well, it was sea, a sea louse is basically a crustacean okay yeah. and the the chemicals that they use interrupt the um the, the, the neural signals that the uh, within within the crustacean so it's going to have the same effect on a lobster as it is on a sea lice hmm.
1: huh. what about cleaner fish because that's something that's come up quite a bit recently in terms of the amount of rass that are being taken out of the sea.
3: This is one of my biggest issues and I've been, on it. An I've been, on, fish, been on it. Because they're an incredible little fish. I've been on the government and Scottish Natural Heritage about this for years.
1: Because they, they're very slow growing, aren't they?
3: Yeah, they are. And uh, they're very to explain, explain,
1: them to explain what a wrasse is to people, because a lot of people have never even seen one before, and how they get into the fish farm.
3: <laughs> well, a wrasse is a, it's a, it's a wild fish that you find in little rocky areas. Uh, it's Kind of it looks like it's been squashed in its sides, so it's yeah. quite a, a sort of a, a narrow fish. It's uh, can be some fantastic colours depending on different types. You've got cuckoo rass, ballon ras.
0: I've I've actually got loads of pictures of ras that I've taken under because they're quite an easy fish to take pictures of because they'll sit on the rock for you for ages if you're yeah. underwater and then they'll go There's, off. Quickly. They're very curious fish yeah. as well.
3: Yeah, so you can you can get quite close to them. I uh, and th- they'll, they'll often scrape algae off of rocks and that's how they feed. Um, but what, what was found that if you put, if wrasse got into uh, a cage, a, a cage of salmon farms a cage of farmed salmon, sorry, then the ras would peck the sea lice off the fish. So it's a cleaner fish basically. Yeah. Um, now the problem is that the, the, the wrasse, they haven't, the fish farmers haven't figured out how to farm the wrasse, but they, so they're taken, a lot, lot of them are taken from the wild. And that has been totally unregulated, and it's been going on for years. And That's crazy. hundreds of thousands of rats are being taken out of the wild. The mortality rate of the rats in the cages, I understand, is quite high. So you have to replace your stock.
1: Uh, so it's not like once you got them, you got them. No,
3: and they will last maybe for a maximum of two production cycles, and then you have to replace the whole load. How long's a production cycle? Twenty-two months. Mm-hmm. So, and then you have a six-week break in between. So I think you're allowed them for up to two production cycles. And then you have to kill the lot of them. The rats. The right. rats. You have to kill the rats. Yeah. And then replace them. Why do you have to kill them? Uh, For a biosecurity point of view, in case they transfer any diseases. <laughs> wow. Um, so, and, and <laughs> you know, if you think how many rats, and, and I know that I think the, the waters off the West Coast, there aren't that many of them left, and they were taking the masses of them down from uh, Devon and Cornwall.
0: Yeah. There was a program
1: about that not that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember seeing, and I can't remember what it. I can't remember where I saw it, but they were um, they were monitoring some boats that said that they weren't catching rass, but they actually were catching rass, and then they were shipping them up to fish farms up here. Yeah.
0: So we could be in a position very soon where rass are something we don't really see much of, mainly because they've been taken
3: yeah i, th- I think it, it depends on the scale of it and, and and where because I don't think the where they're farming where they're fishing for the rass they can get in everywhere so I think there will be locations that will be okay but the 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 problem for me is it's a totally unregulated industry so they've just been told just get on with it yeah, and and do what you want now what's what's what the fish farmers they they have been trying incredibly hard to farm rass, but they haven't because yeah, that able, makes sense it makes sense grow yeah. grow your own yeah but they haven't been able to do it so they found another fish. It's called a lumpfish that uh does a roughly the same job as the wrasse and, it's much, and they can farm it so they can grow their own. It's not as good as ras; it's not as effective I think the mortality rate is higher as well and the farmed lumpfish aren't as good as the wild lumpfish at taking uh. the sea lice. But I think uh, it's better than the alternative. Yeah, better than nothing. Yeah, it is. I mean I, I think that I, I spoke to one fish farmer one time and he said I, I don't farm salmon anymore I farm cleaner fish and they look after the cleaner fish and the cleaner fish look after the salmon for them. And it's become so twisted that they're having to... that they've almost lost sight of the original plan, which was growing salmon. That for protein. For protein, yeah. yeah. And they've almost lost sight of this, you know, what are we doing this for? Because so, it's
1: just industry and money. Yeah, yeah. it is. What, and it's, it's growth. Want the feed that they feed salmon... What does it consist of? What goes into making that feed? And there's a reason I'm asking you this question, but I, I don't know exactly what goes into okay. it. Okay,
3: it's changed over the years. It used to be very high fish meal and fish oils, okay. incredibly high. But as they've become rarer, as we've emptied the seas for all sorts of issues, you know, the fish oil and fish meal were used for pig farming, chicken, whatever, yeah. that they've had to switch to a more vegetarian diet. So it's more soya-based now, Isn't I it? think. Yep. So,
1: oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. So now we're taking it from soya beans, which also destroy the planet.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's, let's grow and, and probably some palm oil in there as well. But, but um, Strangely enough, though, one of the, the big selling benefits of farmed salmon is for omega-3s and omega-6s, which mm. come from fish oil and fish meal. Uh, now, if you're replacing that with Soya, which doesn't have omega-3s and omega-6s, then the health benefits of salmon... Because then you there. don't have it in the in the final product, have which it in is the, the salmon, or well, not correct.
1: to the same extent. Correct.
3: That's fascinating. Yeah. So is it as healthy for you as has been made out?
0: Now, obviously, we can't grow, grow... I think we talked about this with corn. We can't grow, grow soy here. It's it's grown abroad, so we're shipping in huge amounts of food. Well, from the, f- the fish pellets probably manufactured abroad somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Huge amounts of food are being brought across here.
1: That's one of the things with it, you know. The, when you look at, um, you know, food stuff like like salmon, and there are other examples as well. When you're having to, when the input required to produce that just starts to not really make logical sense anymore, and especially if you were, you know, before they were supplementing it um, uh, with with soya, you're taking a whole heap of fish out the sea to grind it up and make it into pellets, just so that you can make a particular type of protein, hence salmon that people want to buy yeah and the conversion rate is not good well it used
3: to to be five the figure that was often quoted 20 years ago five kilograms of uh, fish to produce one kilogram of salmon what a waste but that's gone right down now because they've changed because they've changed it Uh so it's Mm -hmm. So the, the 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 feed they've learnt a lot more about feed conversion ratios and they're much much better now on the farms because where, it makes where, sense where, for them where they, they want it are? to be
1: more where efficient.
0: Where do you think most soys produced? Uh, Africa?
1: Um, I don't know, but I'm going to look. I'm gonna look, look at it.
0: That. <laughs> so I'm interested <laughs> to see where it's actually produced. Yeah. So then it has to be a country that has probably low labour rates for it to be worthwhile to ship it halfway across the world or wherever it comes from. Yeah. But, but
3: but salmon is then shipped across the across world the as world, well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, China's a huge market now, and the uh, United States is a huge market. Um, so in Australia as well.
0: You find in that. As
1: well. uh, uh, produced in temperate and tropical regions. Key so, source of uh, protein and vegetable
0: oils. So middle of the world.
1: So a lot Could of be. Brazil,
3: Argentina. So the rainforest is getting chopped down yeah. to produce salmon. <laughs> well, yeah, to just feed for salmon. And...
1: and it's it amazes me how well. I mean, <laughs> I didn't, I had didn't know this connection necessarily, although I'm very aware that we... I don't know a lot of the connections in terms of food and the impact and the negative impact it's having but having these kind of discussions where people can really understand the impact. It's not just I'm eating salmon, I'm negatively affecting the uh, the wild fish population because of sea lice in Scotland. Now all of a sudden, we're in Brazil <laughs> <laughs> <That> <laughs> because of crazy, the food that you it? feed the salmon.
3: Yeah, Yeah. It's just incredible and if you think how connected everything is as well you know you take the fuel to get the yeah. the, sh- the ships over it's produced in the Middle East and then that's shipped all around the world to oh it's just it's boggling I, I would always go for eat local, local. if you can yeah, that's what we if say. you can
0: that's what we say
3: yeah eat Le- e-
0: seasonal and local seasonal, yeah absolutely a- and we've, we've had this discussion loads of times you do not need to have all these exotic foods 365 days a year no you really don't
3: <laughs> I couldn't live without avocados. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know what? You're I,
1: the problem, Craig. <laughs> I, was, no, gonna, I'm gonna, I joking, was. I don't I, eat
0: them. I, I do
1: actually. <laughs> I do eat avocados. But
0: we can't grow them here. We, no. uh,
1: don't you're gonna make me think that I should stop
3: eating
0: avocados? It's not. Uh, maybe we could. Maybe we the could world. grow them
3: in pods out at sea somehow. <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> the the, cra- you
0: probably could grow them in greenhouses here. I think. Yeah. Well, uh, our cousin Anthony has um. Huge oh, New Zealand. Avocado mm. treat in New Zealand. But what's strange? Do you think it's just because their summers are just slightly longer than ours? It's it's just because their climate's very similar. It's just a little bit warmer we're here than we are. Yeah. Uh, okay. That thing was producing so much avocados, it was feeding a whole hospital. <laughs> <laughs> He's a doctor. <laughs> yeah. He didn't know what to
1: do with them all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's get off uh, fish farming. We might end up back there, who knows. And talk about what you're you're doing now, because you and I, uh, along with the rest of the trustees, were sitting in a meeting last night um, for the Esk Rivers and Fisheries Trust, which is, you know, that is what you fill your day-to-day with now. So explain what that is and what you do there.
3: Okay, well, first of all, it's worth saying I work for two organisations. I work for the Esk Rivers and Fisheries Trust, which is a charitable body, uh, which is they are really to protect and improve aquatic ecosystems so that covers all species invertebrates all fish species uh, everything on the river pretty much the i also my other my other job is the Esk district salmon fishery board which is a statutory body which has uh, it's kind of the, the the official body that's there to protect um salmon fisheries in its in a fishery district so I have two different jobs with a slightly different emphasis, but the two do work very well together. They're two, two sides of the same. We're, we're there to protect the environment, protect salmon fisheries, protect the river. Yeah, so that's that's how I, sp- I spend my time.
1: And this is, uh, just for people, because we have listeners from all over the world, so that you can kind of situate this in your mind, it is the east coast of Scotland, yes. uh, But south of Aberdeen, but not as far as Dundee. Correct. Or, that's or Edinburgh. That's perfect. Well, yeah.
3: people tend to know. too oh, much, yeah, they probably really... wouldn't have heard it. Done. are halfway up the east coast yeah, of exactly. Scotland. Yeah,
0: we are
1: the best part of Scotland. <laughs> and I mean, one of the things we were, well, one of the many things we were discussing last night um, in the trust meeting is the the long list of projects that are ongoing. And I've got, um, I, I might as well just, I've got the the list in front of me here. And I thought we could cover some of them because there's some really interesting work going on. I'll tell you what I'm going to start with first, actually, and I know you weren't uh, in position when this happened, but you've been involved in it since, was the, the Rottleburn project, which was rerouting a canalised section of a tributary of the South Esk to, I think it was, was it pre, like was it like 1890s yeah, or something a, like that? This was being talked about three years ago, wasn't it? Oh, no, it's done. Oh, it's, it's done Yeah, now. Yeah, yeah no, it's oh, been yeah. it's been done for quite a long time, but there's an ongoing monitoring process okay, yeah. for it. And it's quite amazing how that improved that river system. Yeah. So, so what what have you been doing since you've come into post with that project basically finished? I know there's some planting you're going to be doing soon, for example.
3: Yeah, well, the the, the river was re-meandered back in 2012, so it's seven years ago. Hmm. I, I, God, is it seven? Seven years ago. I can't believe it's that long. And the, the, the river is still adjusting to its new life. Mm. So it's it fantastic. Because it needs to settle in. It yeah. is, and it is still settling in. And uh, so what's happening is the when it was re-meandered, the, it wasn't really very good for fish or other wildlife because it was all silted up. There was a lot of sand there. And it's still, you need to have the river processes in place to create the habitat that's good for fish and insects. So a single channel why just why doesn't...
0: Would, why was the river originally changed? I can't remember what the uh, reason d-drainage. was.
1: Drainage. So so just, just drainage. drainage. Yeah. So agriculture, yeah, the same uh,
3: as
0: just, most of these uh, systems.
3: Yep. So well, yeah, because they want to use it for sheep or livestock oh, or something okay. like that. Mm. I was going to say
0: that that river's got freshwater mussels in it, doesn't it? Uh,
1: the South S system, yeah, yeah, mm.
3: not
0: not the, roto,
1: uh, not the Roto, not the Roto, oh, roto oh, okay. not the yeah. not far away. That's though. one of the reasons it's a triple SI.
3: Yeah, uh, it's got special area of conservation. Mm. One, one higher, one higher than that.
1: Yeah, so uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm glad you pointed it's a, that it's out. It's a special
3: area of conservation for um, freshwater pearl mussel and Atlantic salmon. Mm. Wow, so. And, sure.
1: and you need both. You'd, well, well, one sal- needs the other. Yeah, the freshwater water you need the, the salmon, salmon. Yeah, uh, yeah. But sorry, back to the the, the rock So it, it was straightened, and the reason why that isn't good for fish uh, or
3: habitat. The, the, what was happening was that the salmon would go in in November time, and they would lay their eggs. And then because the river is straightened, when there was a flood, the river would come flying down, and it would basically wash away. Because the, the it, it wasn't being slowed. It wasn't being slowed, but there's nothing to slow the water yeah. down and it would just gain momentum and you get what's called red washout. Um, at the, the nest of a salmon is called a red and then the, the eggs are just stripped, out, washed away and they never hatch. So it's very, very poor. And you also end up with a system, and when you have a straightened system, the whole riverbed is homogenous. It's all the same depth with the same rock types. And that isn't good for fish. Fish need diversity of habitats for the different life stages that they have. And you get that when you have a meandering river, a nice river that's got... got Deep edges and shallow uh, edges. Big boulders, small boulders, gravel. Riffle diversity is very good, exactly.
1: It's nicer to fish too. Yes, it makes it more interesting. It does.
3: So yeah, so seven years ago it was uh, changed from a straightened a straight section that was about oh what uh, eight hundred meters long into yeah. one that's about one point three kilometers wow. now. So we've increased you increased the habitat by meandering. And uh, this and was done
1: with the, the landowner D Ward, who's up yes, there. Yes, yeah, right yeah, to so, so it, it involved uh, basically in a way sort of reclaiming land into river and some river into land.
3: It it did. And I think the the area that it passes through the field isn't very good for farming no, it, anyway. It's, it was pretty wet. Too. Yeah, it's quite swampy, so it's it's much better use now.
1: It's great habitat outside of the river now.
3: It is. Yeah. yeah. At the time we planted a whole lot of trees and not most of them survived, uh, but now there's it's um, there's long grasses and there's lots of insects and you you, you see some fantastic. We saw black kite there um, a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago actually. Flying up there and the seagulls and that's oh, a fantastic area.
2: Wow.
1: But there's a whole heap of other work, new work going on in Glen Clover yes. right now, which is not very far from where I live. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about that.
3: Okay, well, wh- what we're doing is the Glen Clover contour planting project. And this is based on a, a project that happened down in Wales a few years ago. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, where you you plant trees around the edges of the Glen. So they're not down in the in the, in the the valley floor oh, if they're yeah. up on the sides and it's a way of retaining water in the catchment or um so what what we see now is now that lots of trees have been stripped out from many headwaters when it rains the rain just comes flying down into the river the river level rises very quickly the water comes barreling down and then half a day later the, the river will drop again and that's not good for Many many uh, species, not least fish and fishing. I was about to say, a ship for fishing too. You speak to the old boys like yeah. from
1: fifty years ago who are fishing, and they all they all tell you that the spates used to last a couple of days. Yeah, you know, on, on all the all these rivers, um, you know, West Water, South Esk. It just used to last longer. That's what you're saying. The, the water took longer to make it to the river and so the, the level stayed higher for longer.
3: Yeah. So there's, there's been, since in the last 50 years ago, there's been quite drastic uh, land use changes or intensification of land use. So there's an awful lot of um, farming has, has become more intensive. A lot of hedgerows have gone. So what we're doing is we're planting, let me get this right, something like 160 hectares of trees along the the edge of the the um the valley the glen uh, something like two hundred and sixty thousand trees will be planting in total wow. all the way around all of the landowners in the glen are buying into this they think it 's a fantastic idea um the benefits are there's going to be lots and lots of benefits, so we 're mainly planting broadleaf trees, so natural native broadleaf trees. There will be some commercial pot forestry because these estates need to make themselves work. They need to earn money. So commercial forestry is one way, but the majority will be native broadleaf. And the idea is that so it's going to boost, um, and it's all going to be connected as well so that will help squirrels. Um, so you have like wildlife ground. corridors. So there's going to be a corridor
0: running down the Glen Bay. That's the idea, yes. Wow. That's the idea. That's quite a significant project for that area.
3: It's The total cost is something like 3.2 million. Pounds. Wow. And, and we've started this year. So we've got we've got the first area fenced off and the first trees have been planted. It's quite exciting. It's, it's I mean it's it's a project that will take a, quite a few years to complete. Um, but once it's there, then I think it will have a should have a huge, huge, huge impact, impact on, on on no not not just the river, because we're going to retain a lot more water in the in the upland area. But well, it's just wildlife sort of wildlife in wildlife general. In general.
1: Yeah, yeah, it
3: is. How does
0: something like that get paid for?
3: At the moment, the the main way is through agri-forestry grants through the EU collection
0: okay. tins down the high street. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but we've also the, the, um,
0: is that going to be a problem if we leave?
3: I I don't think so because I think these grants will continue. I think they have to continue. Certainly, Scottish Parliament, Scottish government has targets for planting lots and lots and of they trees. Do, yeah. I am, and this project just meets it perfectly. And that, I mean, it's not just even planting. There's a a specific reason for planting that has an environmental benefit.
1: Yeah, it's not just random planting yeah. trees. Right. You have a plan. Yeah. yeah, and
3: yeah. it's not just commercial f- uh, forestry, commercial conifer plantations, which do have, which can have a negative environmental impact. These are mainly broadleaf that will be there for eighty, a hundred years, and will have you know lots of knock-on benefits on birds. Um, so I'm hoping that those grants will continue if we leave the EU. Uh, the other way we're getting money is through this organization called Forest Carbon, and it's like it's carbon trading.
1: Ah, okay. So carbon offsets for companies carbon yeah. offsets
3: for companies, and this is something that I think is going to become a lot more. Oh, we're going to see a lot, lot more of that. A lot yeah. more, and but I mean, it's just fantastic because the, you know they make money available, but not only that, but there's a you know there's this environmental benefit to it as well. So it's and I think the companies that are investing in this in this sort of project. I think they would like to see an environmental benefit to it as well. It's not yeah, just course. we're planting trees to help our clients produce more CO two. Yeah, we're planting trees. They're going to have a positive <laughs> yeah. benefit, and with you know, and it's strategic and it's been thought about. And so I think
1: that's the key with with a with a project like that is that it's not just planting trees for the sake of planting trees. Mm. There, has, is there is there is a much wider benefit. yeah. But, but there was you guys have a really
0: uh, detailed plan in place of why you're doing it. Yeah. So when when you tick that box on the When you're booking flights and you say like it's an extra 20 quid and you get to plant 100 trees, that's probably where the money goes, to one of these bigger companies. You would would hope it would be a planned project. I
3: just think how good you would feel on your flight if you ticked that box. I don't don't
0: actually know how much it is, but
1: I think it is about 20 or 30 quid extra. I just booked flights the other day and I didn't see that option on EasyJet. Maybe oh, EasyJet, no. don't care.
3: Okay. I'll have to speak to them. <laughs> no, I, I I might,
1: maybe I didn't look hard enough. The problem when you book with EasyJet is there's they so many <laughs> bloody things to take. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I, all I, I do is just continue, 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 because no, I don't want to book a car. I don't want to book a hotel. No, it's it's fine. I don't need extra bags. I don't want to pick my seats. Definitely. I don't want to pick my air hostess <laughs> <laughs> for an extra five months. <laughs> <laughs> definitely
0: with some of the big airlines, being, and yeah. they definitely give you the option for the carbon offset, the... I actually saw a friend of ours, um, Ulrich,
1: who, he's a a veterinary student. He must be almost finished now. I think, no, he's... Is he finished? He's a fully-fledged vet Oh, he is. Sorry, he is a vet now. Um, But he hunts around the world all the time, just sort of on the bones of his arse, because he's done it the whole time he was a student, and he just, like, scraped together some money so he could go to New Zealand for, like, six months. I don't quite know how he had time to study. But I saw him put up a thing the other day, and he was talking about environmental responsibility and how he had offset his flight's... With um, it, was, it was tree planting of some in Tasmania,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's gonna it's gonna get bigger, and uh, I, I mean certainly on the rivers and especially in the headwaters in much of Scotland, there is not there are not nearly enough trees. We need masses. Did more we trees. take them out? We've not the the. They've been right? knocked down, yeah, and and funnily enough, although the a lot of the grants coming are from the EU. It was a lot of the common agricultural policy was the reason many trees were taken down in the first place. The same so
1: reason a lot of the moors were drained. Yeah, back exactly. in seventies. Well,
3: I think a lot, a lot of that. So a lot of the moors were drained so they could plant forests, yeah. plant, plant, commercial plantations. Sicker plantations. Yeah. yeah, it is. But there's an awful lot of work being done with in Scotland just now with peatland restoration oh, a huge as amount. well. Yeah, a it's, huge amount. It's, it's, it's really
0: it's, impressive it's, what they're doing there. Yeah. It's amazing the cycles that we go through. Yeah. <laughs>
3: It is, yeah. we'll Rape be, the
1: land, <laughs> fix the land. <laughs> fix it, land. it afterwards. Of, hopefully know. we're not going to end up in a, well, long after we're dead in a cycle where we destroy it again. I hope not. Because we've learned. Yeah. Well, you would think so. Well,
3: one, one of the issues certainly I'm very keen on is when I'm talking to landowners is, is this legacy issue. So we have future projections with climate change that the temperatures are going to increase and we're moving into a period where in upland areas, salmon might not be able to survive because of the temperatures of the river. Mm. So we need to plant trees to provide the shade, to provide areas of refuge. And if we're saying to the landowners now, if you want your grandchildren to fish for salmon, you need to plant trees along the riverbank, and I think that's that resonates with a lot of them actually. And so, I'd like to see it'd be great to see a lot more trees planted, especially along riverbanks, start to provide shade and there's all sorts of other benefits. P- people now. need
0: a long, long term because this is this is thirty, twenty, thirty years time. We need to be looking
3: absolutely. ahead here. Yeah, I mean, but we absolutely need to do it now. Now? Yeah, like absolutely. with a lot of things. With a lot, right we've now. Left it a
0: little bit late. We all need to be doing these things now. <laughs>
1: yes. The habitat works in Glen Clover, so same yes. river that we're talking about. That was fascinating what you're doing there with because that that section that you're about to talk about. I mean, I drive past it fairly frequently, and it just just seems so dead and sterile. Like from the road when you're looking at it slow almost i mean obviously it's flowing because it's a river but it doesn't look like it's flowing it's you know it's pretty slow moving the banks are all eroded there's the you can see these high banks that are slipping all the sand and soil and silt into the river continually and it just doesn't look good it, but it, you're hoping to do some work on that.
3: Yeah, it doesn't. And uh, but that's not just a function of land use. Uh, that's That area of the River South Esk in Glen Clover used to be a lake, used to be a loch, um, back in the, just post the last ice age. It's very, very flat. Just where flat. it got dammed up and broke through. Yeah, so it's very, very flat which means that there's not much gradient, which means that the river doesn't, the water doesn't pick up much momentum. Yeah. So it, do, it is very lazy. It's uh, Naturally speaking. Naturally yeah. speaking, yeah. So it's a passive meandering river. But it's also the soil is basically sand. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. It doesn't hold together very no, well. it though, doesn't. Then, and so the banks will collapse. But... Where you would in the past have had trees along the river, light lining the river bank, and they, the tree roots bind the soils together and help to slow down the rate of erosion, we don't have them anymore because, because we've of it grazed it right we've to the edge, it, yeah. yeah, or they've been taken down for other reasons. So what um, what we're trying to do the is fish, adult fish, adult salmon and sea trout. When they come into a river, they look for three things: they look for water depth, they look for cover, somewhere to hide, and they look for some shade. And those make the fish feel very safe and very happy, and they will stay in an area. We don't have that in these sections of the river, so we're trying to find ways to replicate that. Uh, and by doing what we're looking to do is to put trees again into the river banks and um, on the waterline to provide that cover. And we'll pick areas have already got some depth, and then we'll try and plant some trees and maybe put some gorse in to try and provide that little bit of shade as well. So that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to provide areas of natural-looking habitat for the adult fish.
1: Hmm. And how long is that going to take, do you think? How long's the the project?
3: Well, the the, the project will take a few days. To no, do. but we, I mean, talking about how much river you want to cover. All of it. All of it. <laughs> I would love to cover. No, we, we couldn't do all of it. But I think uh, we, we've applied for funding to do 10 areas in, uh, over the next couple of years. I don't know if we'll get that, but we're certainly two of the landowners up there uh, are funding the first ones themselves out okay. of their own pocket, and I've got some funding from the Cairngorms National Park as well. So, to, so to do to do one of the the, the first ones as well. So, it, it's, what we're doing basically is putting trees into the river, um, and so that not only will it provide the cover that the fish need, it will also help invertebrates. And then help
1: When you say trees You're trees. cutting trees And lying them in the river Aren't you
3: Pulling them out Pulling them we out want Oh root, no you want the root We on, want the root yeah. As well yeah oh. So we'll be pulling them out So there's a Yeah So We'll find a good use For commercial forestry <laughs> Commercial conifer <laughs> plantations We'll take them put out And underwater. put them in the river yeah. yeah And we want all the branches there So the messier the better Um, and we'll just provide And so What what that will also do So One of the benefits is it, it helps the fish It helps the adult fish It gives them a bit of habitat And when the river floods, having the the trees in the river against the bank will slow down the rate of water coming down as well. So when I was talking about the the contour planting with the trees on the side of the the valley, slowing the rate of water down, by putting trees into the river, it also slows down the rate of water. So we had Storm Frank, what was that, about four years ago, three, four years ago, where Brecon was flooded, which is downstream on South Esk. If we have these measures in place, if we'd done this twenty years ago, then there's a good chance actually Brecon wouldn't have flooded, because the water would have stayed up in the upland areas.
0: Yeah. My village flooded, Marykirk. Marykirk, <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, that was horrendous, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, different river, but yeah,
3: yeah, but, but the same same idea, yeah. same idea. same idea, yeah, mm. same principles.
1: And over a longer term, these uh, these I was going to call them structures, but they're not structures. They're trees that you're pinning to the bank. Yeah, over time, those will eventually rot, but you will have natural growth yeah. after to replace what you're artificially putting in. Is that the idea?
3: Yeah, I think what 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 we will do is we'll put willow we'll we'll Okay um, plant some willow in the area as well. Uh we have to be a bit careful with tree planting there because wading birds like the area but they don't like trees because they don't feel safe, because raptors will, and foxes will or use sit on, them. Yeah, yeah, for yeah cover so, or sit on them to yeah, predate so them, in certain, Yeah. So we have to be a bit careful. We'll speak to the uh, RSPB about that. But but what what will happen eventually, yeah, you're right, the trees will rot down, but um, the silt will gather, they'll, they'll collect sediment, and they'll just firm up the riverbank as mm-hmm. well. So, yeah, they'll, they'll be there for a long time, I would have thought.
1: What, uh, is there a, a mon- going to be a monitoring pro- um process so that you can see okay today it's x 10 years time after implementing it we can see how much better it is and it has to be because of what we've done
3: it's difficult to measure it um, because what you would normally do is see how many more fish are spawning in the river Mm.
1: but they're not spawning in those sections really well but
3: they can't because the 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 substrate of the river isn't suitable to that it's very sandy but so what we're really just creating is an area for the adult fish to feel safe in yeah um, and so and then they'll go somewhere else and spawn in mm-hmm. more suitable habitat. We're going to try and create some more spawning habitat using slightly different methods and other bits of the river. Um, it's a bit more... We'll, we'll, it's using trees again, but they're used in a slightly different way to try and collect some gravel that the fish can then use yeah. to spawn with. Yeah, we're going to try that as well. Uh, so the, I suppose that the measure, the success will be if people are catching fish. Hmm. That's, that's going to be our big... If, if people go to that pool... And there, there are no fish there just now because there, there's nothing for them there. Yeah, there's no fish. reason for them to stay. Yeah. yeah, but if if people start catching fish, then I think that's been a success.
0: And you'll know they're holding. Is there anything else like this going on on this kind of scale in Scotland?
3: Yeah, there's. I mean, a, a lot of other trusts have been doing, this, been doing uh, this. fisheries trusts. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, on it, it different areas, it was can be done slightly in a slightly different way. Um, I mean, we're having to adapt to the very sandy soil we have here, but the the actual method itself, I think, has been pretty well accepted. It's, okay. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the uh, to the north, we have the river D. They're putting large root wads into the middle of the river, to, and it's a similar sort of thing. They're trying to create habitat for the yeah, fish, okay. just to kind of actual... scour out and change the flow. Right. We, yeah. Uh, so these areas that are, are that maybe they're a bit straightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the river is all the same depth. If you put in putting the other structures in the river i suppose it's how weirs worked as well yeah. but this is using natural materials rather than concrete
1: yeah it's a, it's a bit better i think i think so it's, a, it looks it's a less better. permanent as well and it allows the sort of natural change of the river to happen yeah because there would uh, there is and there, there would have been lots of bits again. of trees and, and true I mean, we pull them out now yeah because it gets in the way of whatever we're doing whether we're canoeing or fishing so we we yank all that stuff out the river but there is definitely a place for it because that was part of the natural cycle
3: I, th- I think there is you know and I can could, I could remember there was a river one of the rivers I worked on I, there was a there was a lovely pool and it had a tree in it and there were lots and lots of fish there and the angling club took the tree out and then couldn't work out why they couldn't catch any fish. Changed the habitat. <laughs> Changed the habitat. The fish didn't like it, and they moved mm. somewhere else.
1: It's funny how we do that as humans. We, we like to, to uh, change the habitat so it's more convenient for us, but maybe not fully comprehending
0: the consequences. <laughs> it's, because it's because people are probably cooking loads of lures I and stuff on the, on the
3: log. Yeah. I, I think um, I think with fishing, there'll be, need to be a slight different change in the way people fish or their expectations of it. I think having these immaculately preserved beats now... Still I, like catch the, fish. I like the the yeah. the more wild feel. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, okay, there's a greater risk of losing a fish under a log or catching something or it's a bit more inconvenient because the, the run's not quite as perfect so you can't fish it right from the top anymore. But yeah, to some extent, does it really matter? Especially if we're actually doing something good. I mean, you look at the pr- sort of proper backcountry country wild fishing in some places, like in in North America or in New Zealand, where the basically nothing's manicured, and you just deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if it's better for fish, I'm all for it.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think so. And and it's, but having those those trees in the river, I, I think the the Wild Trout Trust they have a saying that fish grow in trees. Mm. Which I quite. Which is something that we tell the kids. Good, it's a good yeah. saying that it is. When we're doing our education projects, that's the sort of the message we get across that you know trees in the river are natural. They should be there. Um, fish have evolved in many cases around the trees mm. in the river as well. So by taking them out, you're you're simplifying the habitat, and you're not going to be able to produce as many fish.
0: You think as well, i you know on certain rivers you see the the roots of the trees in the river and they create this amazing habitat, like mini for, ha, mini ecosystem yeah, there, yeah. like, and there's always small fish in the roots because nothing else can really get in there.
3: Yeah, quite often we, um, part of the work with the Fisheries Trust we do electrofishing surveys, so we do surveys of juvenile fish, and where you have those trees with the roots in the river, that's you will find all of the par, all in of there. the all of them in there. So you will find nothing else in the other. You know, nine nine tenths of the river, and yeah. then under the underneath the roots, that's where they all are. Uh, so it's it's obviously something that they prefer as a habitat, and we need to start providing them for it because a lot of a lot of rivers now don't have tree cover.
1: I don't know why I just thought of this, but years ago when I used to fish uh, the and Angling Club section of the South Esk, there was one particular pool there that was full of sticklebacks. Have you, did you come by a lot of sticklebacks? Yeah, yeah. Are they naturally in the river? Yes, anyway, they
3: are. Sticklebacks are, are natural. Yeah. Uh, what what we do see. I mean, sicklebacks and eels, and at the bottom of the river, you'll see a lot of flatfish as well, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, in the the brackish areas. Yeah, or even in the freshwater as well. Hmm. Um, What's not natural, certainly in this part of Scotland, are minnow, which are the bane of my life. Uh, Do you find them in the rivers here? Yeah. yeah, How did they get here? They were brought in as live baits, and then at some (laughs) point... Even
1: live baits for the rivers? Yeah. And then huh. at the end of
3: the day, someone will have been fishing and just uh, them chuck them in, just to get rid of them and throw them into the river, and now they are everywhere. And stone loach, we see uh, a lot of stone yeah. loach as well. Yes, you do. Yeah.
0: Plenty of them, and I've seen them in the west water.
3: Yeah, yeah. So we're down at we we're down at Marykirk doing some fishing the other day, and we saw lots and lots of minnow and lots of stone loach. And there's nothing we can do about. it. No, no, they're there now. But mm. well, are
1: they a food? I mean, there must be a food source for trout.
3: Yeah. They would be. The trout. stone lurch are bloody fast. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. But the good thing is that with the minnows, certainly they tend to shoal and shoal in shallow water as well. So it's yeah. just keep the heron happy, I think. Oh,
1: uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And and maybe the kingfisher. And the kingfisher.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we've yeah. got a
1: kingfisher just here. I've seen him quite yeah. a few times this Nearly
0: year. Nearly every day I hear the kingfisher on the oh, river. Oh, really? Yeah, you, it must have a nest because it fly up and down all
1: day. This year I've seen him more than any other yeah. year. So, the, yeah, it must be nesting and feeding somewhere.
3: Yeah, it seems to have started earlier. You think so? This year, yeah. I, I don't.
1: I've not. You know, I can think of the amount of times I've seen a kingfisher. I can think of them in my head, so it's not been that often. Right. Um, but this year, uh, yeah, like you say, every couple of times I go down, I see it flying up and, and, flying up, right? and down, yeah. which is great
3: to see. Oh, I love the the iridescent blue, as if it's especially so if we look above. Oh, because
1: we're not used to that here. You yeah. Know, in other countries where there's lots of colourful birds. You just you don't even, you begin not to notice it, but you come numb to it because everything's colourful. But here we don't really have any colourful birds. Oh. So when you see that just vivid blue streak coming up the river, it catches your eye and it's yeah. incredible.
3: In fact I had uh, one of the, the gillies on the river the other week said they saw two mandarin duck uh. On the on the for not, they're not native. I don't know where they came from, but he said they were. He was looking at them and they were flying funny. And then when the, the sun got the right con side, yeah. he saw the. It's getting a the yellowish. They have not quite brightly coloured heads. The mandarin ducks. I'm trying red, to think reds now. And, reds and yellows.
1: I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to look it up. <laughs> what? Um, just talking about it was when you mentioned herons. There, it was made me. It made me think of it. Predation issues that we have, or not even issues, but. Uh, potential predation conflicts with, I mean, we've been talking about species which are struggling for many, many different reasons, not just in the rivers, but uh, more often actually out at sea and us not 100% knowing what happens to them out at sea before they're coming back, Mm -hmm. the migratory components we're we're talking about. Um, What predatory issues are there? I mean, there's a lot of things that predate on fish. And is there anything that we need to be looking at
3: more or having more discussions about? I think w- we are having those discussions and we have them with Scottish Government and Scottish Natural Heritage. The The big issue on in the rivers is from uh, fish-eating birds. So we have the sawbill ducks, which are amagansers and gooseanders, yeah. I, and we have cormorants. And they are huge, huge problems. Um, I think what's happened is in the past, well, Goose Sanders are a relatively recent addition to the, this area. They didn't didn't arrive here until the nineteenth century. Eighteen seventies, I think it was, but the first goose sanders were spotted up in in the Tay. So they're relatively recent and I think they were controlled by the gamekeepers on the big estates for years. Cormorants the and Goose Sanders I mean, were all controlled. Back in those days they could.
1: They could. And, they killed, and then there was they killed, no regulation. Yeah, they killed golden eagles everything, and sea eagles. Yeah. Absolutely I'm,
3: I'm not justifying it, I'm just saying this is, this is, what, well, this happened, is what happened. Yeah. And in 1981, the, the um, regulations were brought in um, to protect these species and the numbers have grown and grown and grown and grown. Now they eat... They eat fish all year round, but especially in the springtime, they'll target the smokes. So the fish that are heading salmon and the sea trout—they're mm. heading out to sea
1: because they—they they tend to shoal.
3: They tend to shoal, but also they, they, they turn silver at that time of year. So they're where easy before, to spot. So they're easy to spot. Yep. Mm. Um, they tend to travel at night time in sort of March er, er, early on in the season. So they're—they're they're not too bad. But sort of late April into May, they'll be travelling through the daytime. And one one cormorant could eat in a day eat well. I don't know, 15, 16 smolts, and we have we count the numbers of cormorants on the river about 80, most times. So, um, that's that up. So every so eight, This is just cormorants, and then you have your gooseanders and magansers, which their populations will vary. So the the numbers when it, and there's been a lot of work done um, on the past on the river North Esk to look at the the diet of these birds, and we know that magansers and Uh, gooseanders on average eat about eight smolts a day, each one. So if you have 200 of these birds on a river, so 200 times eight, that's 1600 smolts a day over maybe a 60 day smolt period. And you start to run into tens of thousands of smolts are eaten uh, in, a, in a year now the river produces around about 200,000 smolts the river north can we know as a percentage as a percentage you're talking about maybe 40% before this is before they even leave the river and then they head out to the river and then they've got <laughs> oh. many thousands of miles to swim poor things poor <laughs> so, things
1: w- with that knowledge the uh, the argument could be that yeah okay i mean that's that's nature right it's a bird that eats fish and it has a place or needs a place too mm-hmm. what is the the counter to that argument? What is what are their populations like? And this is one of these discussions that's so difficult to have in a kind of pragmatic way. When I look at it. this is a little bit like, I think, the the issue, although maybe some people in certain sects of the conservation uh, movement would disagree with me. It's a little bit like the issue with the, the pine martens and Capricale, where you have two, one species that is really struggling, another species that is protected and had been struggling in the past, has recovered a lot, and you can't really do anything about either of them, but it looks like we're really struggling to hold on to the Capricale. The pine martens doing great, but you can't kill the pine martens.
3: Yeah. F- f- funnily enough, I was speaking to the RSPB about this, who manage a capicali estate oh, okay. up, uh, up north. And they found out that they, they they had been shooting foxes as a pest. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but then they found out that the foxes were controlling the pine marten. <laughs> so they stopped shooting the foxes. <laughs> well, that must be an
1: admission that the pine so, marten's also a
3: problem. Well, they were yeah. a problem. Yeah. yeah, they were for the capercaillie. So I, I think uh, man has totally destroyed a lot of the environment. And we pretty much have to manage everything now. Yeah, Cormorants, for me, are seabirds. They should be eating out at sea. They shouldn't really be in the river. So they
1: think. are they up here just because competition on the, uh, competition on yeah, the it's
3: easy shore. it's, it's, it's easy prey and there's just not enough feeding out at sea as it okay. there was. There's not enough. I mean, they should be out at sea.
0: So, like you just said, the argument of well, they're they're natural birds, so they should be you know they they should be left alone. It can't you can't have that argument anymore because, because there is too much going on at sea yeah. for these fish. So we now we have to look after them here because this is the only point that we can look
3: after them. Uh-huh. And 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 the species of gooseander is a relatively recent addition to the shores. Mm. They're having a massive impact as well, and, and they'll be there on the river all year round. So, I think I think there's a there's a migratory portion to these sawbill ducks, and then there's a, a resident portion. Mm-hmm. I'm not not quite sure the numbers. You know, they since I've been here, they do fluctuate, yeah. um, and the, the timings of when they turn up fluctuate as well. We we, we are limited because certainly around about May time that's when they the start having their eggs and re- rearing their young. So there are restrictions about when we can control these birds and the numbers that we control are very small. But what we do on in the North Esk and the South Esk is a, it's like a smoke shepherding. So it's not just Shooting to kill because we do, we have very small numbers we can actually kill so we have to come up with something else and we've been doing shepherding where it's scaring tactics as well so when the when the smokes are running you keep the birds moving you scare them shotgun blasts or just loud noise or even just dog walkers they'll keep them off the river and then you just try and let as many smokes down the river and out as possible I think I can understand why these birds were protected in the first place. I think it's probably gone too far now and the populations are too big that they're having a a large impact on the smokes on the salmon and sea trait populations. Now that's not saying that all of the problems are down to these no. birds as no, i out of it. at sea. But if you're losing forty percent of your stock before you even get out to the sea mm. then you've got a huge you've got a problem.
0: 'Cause those numbers, you know, in my head you go for me, you'd be like, okay, it would kind of be acceptable to lose 10 to 15% in the river as you go down, but 40 is... Yeah. And that's just to one predator. Yeah, that's what I mean, just
1: yeah. to yeah. one thing. Well, yeah. maybe
0: two, two different bird two, species.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it is incredible. And I think we need to find a balance. We're having discussions with Scottish Government, the... Um, Certainly is there an appetite for
1: it? Because I should probably, you, you did mention it, but just elaborate for our listeners that you can apply for a licence, but as Craig was saying, that the number that you're allowed to control is pretty small yeah. per river. Is it per river or river system?
3: Per, per river.
1: So does that include all the tributaries?
3: I no, it just tend to do. It just tends to be around the the bottom okay. in, the, in the main stem. Yeah,
1: because that's where they're sort of coming together all the yeah. time. Yeah, so th- those are
3: lethal control methods we did a license for. We yeah. don't need them for the sh- um, the the, sc- the scaring. Yeah, the scaring tactics, and it's just I mean, we, the the gillies on the rivers are fantastic. You know, they they'll get out at four o'clock in the morning, keeping the birds away, trying to yeah. scare them, um, keep keep them off, keep them off the river as much as possible. So it's got to be done though. It does, you know. They do a fantastic job, and uh, I, th- I think it was something we'd like to see expanded. But I do, I do think that the populations are just too big. Too big. I do.
1: It's just an honest discussion. You know, it, it really pains me that it's so hard to have these discussions without people getting overexcited and animated about it. Yeah. In a in an emotional way, rather than having a logical debate.
3: Th- to be fair, th- I haven't really heard. Maybe it's the circles I go in. I haven't really heard too many detractors about the need to control the birds or to protect the smolts. Maybe that's
1: no. I mean, the, I haven't really heard it either. But but in in the, in the same token, then you would think that we would have more licences to control more.
3: Well, I think it's it's the it's controlled at the moment by Scottish Natural Heritage, and they look at it very much from the po- point of view of the bird population. Mm-hmm. So licences are issued on the point of view of. How healthy are the birds? Uh, They're not really What's really their impact on other things? What's the impact on the fish? Oh, that's I, interesting. I, and I think there are. I mean, as with everything to do with humans and what we do, there are economic concerns. So there are the fisheries. You know, there are jobs. People people's jobs they rely on having good fisheries. Now, if yeah. you're losing forty percent of your stock, and that's against a background of record low marine survival, survival yeah. rates, yeah. yeah, then it's a yeah. compounding error, upon point error. And,
1: and if you don't oh, have good difficult. fisheries, then you don't have them paying into the board. And if you don't have them paying paying in for for salmon, then you don't have the work being done to maintain the rivers.
3: Exactly. This is. I mean, this is one of my big issues. I had a, a, a philosophical discussion with a journalist a few years ago about fishing, hmm. and she thought it was cruel and unnecessary. And why is it done? But if you look at, me, I'm sure you've covered this in your podcast before, it is the people who hunt and fish that care the most about the species and the environments. And you need those people there, otherwise it would just be exploited for other reasons. Because
0: well, you, you couldn't, and we discussed it before, you couldn't expect on it wouldn't happen. You go <laughs> to every dog walker that uses the track along uh, the North Esk or anything, go, uh, you need to pay um, £5 a week to walk on this. Oh, what's it for? It's to maintain the river. I'll just walk somewhere else. Then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you it, need people with vested interest. You do,
3: yeah. you do. And, you know, the the anglers are your most passionate people yeah. about, about the salmon stocks. Um, yeah, absolutely. You do need it, and it, it goes beyond that as well. You know, there's the impact on local economy from hotels and mm-hmm, restaurants. Yes. And absolutely, you know the trickle down effects. I think in the the north Esk when the last study was done, the fisheries were worth about two million pounds to the local economy.
0: Well, I mean, you just got to look at the the pub in my village. Fishing must be one of their biggest percentage of customers going yeah. into the bar, and then they also have a lot of um, people that come in for the shooting on yeah. Montrose Basin. Mm-hmm.
1: Although yeah, well, the fishing finishes, all the shooting season fills Start. the hotel for us, the and of then the season.
0: obviously there's all the little bits in between. But you, whenever I go there on a the Saturday during the fishing season, the bar is full of fishermen. Yeah, full, and I just show you, if they if that was gone, you like pot- potentially could close. I know
3: yeah it would yeah it, it would do and it's I mean even angler numbers the, the anglers are changing their behavior as well now there's maybe not as many of them coming up for a week as there used to be now it's coming for shorter trips yeah, and that ha- it ha- affects the local economy, so absolutely, but I mean aside from that as well we we, we do need to protect the species you know the, the Atlantic salmon in the South esk is a protected species, so we need to protect it, yes, and it's it's finding that balance, and I think at the moment just as too much protection for the birds and maybe not enough Focus understanding and protection on the fish
0: mm. people are probably interested in what you do on a kind of day-to-day basis because it's fascinating and I imagine people picture you being out in the river every day which you probably sat, I, sat in front of your computer i know i know won't right? be yeah. the case but i mean we're looking out here and you look after some of the rivers that are in front of us we can't see them all Mm-hmm. And it is some of the most spectacular parts of the world. Yeah, here these little gems of rivers hidden everywhere. So, what is it you kind of do on a day to day?
3: You're right. I don't have a I don't have a set routine. I, um, the the people who are out on the river every day are the water bailiffs. So we okay. employ two water bailiffs. They're um, they basically enforce the fisheries legislation, but they do more than that as well. They just they check that, any problems with the river or any pollution incidents. What I split my time between the fisheries trust and the fisheries board. So it'll be managing the staff, um, it'll be admi- a lot of administrative work which is very boring. But I also get to do the fun stuff as well. So that's the stuff people are interested that's the in. stuff I like to do. Electrofishing, so yeah. Well yeah, we're doing an awful lot of electrofishing in the summer, but we're also doing the habitat improvement works the river I'll be involved in that so that needs to get set up but it also needs to be designed and you speak to lots of different people about how best to do these things and where to get the trees from so I'll do that kind of work I'll help with the, the, the putting them in as well I, we've got education projects running at the moment so we're um been down the river, and helping people with that, taking cubs fishing and schools and schools as well it sounds yeah. like
1: from the discussion last night that 's being a really great success and making youngsters really enthused about the river
3: yeah what what we're trying to do with with the education project is um is getting kids out of the classroom and down to the river. And just to experience what it's like down the river, so and give them an understanding what's in the river. So it's not just the fish, it's showing them the birds, kingfishers, and squirrels, and there's bats and invertebrate birds, invertebrates as well. But mainly, it's just getting the kids out of the classroom and into the wild, (laughs) and you know, they're, they're. they absolutely love it. But this It'd is be the highlight year. of of the
0: the of week of the like earlier month. month yeah. Yeah. yeah,
3: it is, I and mean, it's incredible. There's a place and there's a school in, in Brecon that we're we're going just now, and the head teacher. It's only what six miles from the coast. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the teacher, the head teacher, was telling me that there are kids in that class who have never been to a beach. You've got to be joking, and let alone down to a river, you know. And it's just they they seem very cut off from it, and it's just incredible. And you bring the kids down to the the um, the river. We've got um, one of the local fishing, uh, owner of a fish, fishing beat has given us use of his fishing hut, which we've converted into a classroom. And it's absolutely brilliant. And the kids absolutely love it. And there's just the questions that they ask. I, I love them. I love the, the way that kids' minds think. We're, they're about 10 years old, 9, 10, they're 11 They old.
0: they unrestricted questions. Uh-huh. They ask
3: you questions that you're probably like...
0: I don't actually know. Like, <laughs> I've never thought about that yeah. before.
3: Yes, uh, and that's the best thing. Yeah. And the, the enthusiasm of us as well. And it's such an easy project for us to do. You know, it's just, you know, you, you get you have a place on the river that's nice and safe for them to go down. We've got nets for them to do kick sampling in the rivers, so they get out, like, get out lots of invertebrates and they get to ID them. Uh, there's a pond that they do pond dipping in as well there's nature trails um, you know it's just basically being on the river and they just have an absolute ball
0: what's What's crazy is Brecon we both went to school there I would regard that it's as a, a rural, rural town, town. Mm. and you know what you're saying is and I know that to be true is that there's a lot of kids that have not really been out in the countryside which is you know Considering it's, it's pretty it's um, incredible considering within five hundred meters of the outskirts of Brecon, you can be in fields, yeah, but I do understand why that doesn't happen, but what chance t- do kids have in um bigger towns and cities across Scotland and particular England and the rest of the world have when you could be be potentially hundred miles from the coast mm-hmm. or you know in in you know, yeah, United States or other parts of the world? A, th- a thousand miles away from the, the coast and to, to learn about their learn real, about environment, environment. real environment. It, yeah. So the, what, why would I care if I've never seen a beach before with litter all, all over it? Or even seen a salmon? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, I think this is the... By doing, by exposing the children to this and, and talking to them, and, and, you know, the kids just... They are sponges. They just soak up so much and they ask so much questions. They get it very quickly. So there's a problem with, you know, kids littering on rivers and, you know, but if, if you teach them about... You, sh- you show them plastic in a river and they they hate it so it doesn't actually take very much to get that um you know engender that sense of responsibility yeah. and concern for the environment it doesn't take much and it's it's almost like an automatic natural response to them it's just because a lot of them haven't seen it before mm. so if you take a little bit of time and explain it to them and I'm, i must have we're using your video your um uh, interview with David Attenborough at the end of we do a little classroom session, That's great. and the kids That's awesome. absolutely love it. Yeah, it's brilliant. And yeah. it, you know, to get somebody for his stature there telling you look after the environment. Yeah. Okay,
0: <laughs> I will obey. I you know. will obey. It's yeah. amazing what impact David Attenborough has. Yeah. We, we actually we just
1: had an email uh, yesterday from a was it a museum down? Yeah, the it was States a
0: museum in uh, BC. Or I can't remember. I, I think it was somewhere it. in Canada. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, asking if we could send them the original video because they want to put it up on a TV screen oh, in brilliant. the museum. Oh, brilliant. Just for in conjunction with the Year of the Salmon. Yeah. yeah. So it's amazing oh, how that little things like that do make a difference. They it just, do. It impacts one person, it maybe impacts another person, makes them think about it a little bit more.
3: Yeah, I think so. But it, it, as I've said, it Vermont. doesn't, it doesn't take go. much, it really doesn't take much to get the kids' imaginations fired. And we, we took the cubs on um, fishing on Sunday down to a local fishery. And you know they had a really good time. It wasn't the best weather. A few of them caught fish, and a lot of them were saying, "I want to keep doing this. How do I keep doing this?" And that's you know it's easy for us to take kids and introduce them. Yeah. But you know we'll put them in touch with a local angling club. The They've got a stage. junior sex' It's the next stage, and you know if their parents don't fish, how do they get out there? And you know, but how do they actually go fishing next time? So we're working on that as well. Um, that's very. But but you place.
0: know th- these small little things at that age might spark. Interest for their entire life in aquaculture. I mean, it is the kind of career that I would have certainly enjoyed going into as becoming a diver and spending a lot of time underwater. Is it a career path that you would go, yeah, you should, you know, if you want to, if you're interested in this, you should go and. Can you recommend recommend aquaculture? Well, I mean, (laughs) it doesn't, not necessarily aquaculture, but that 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 world, Um, science.
3: when When I speak to people who work on fish farms, and you ask them what they enjoy about it. The big thing for them is the setting, the environment. You know, they say, "Oh, there's dolphins swimming past. There's whales swimming past." As we see, seagulls and ospreys, not seagulls, see eagles, sea eagles and ospreys, and you know, it's the environment. But when I mean, they grow the fish as well, and they do care about their stock. Um, do you know it's it's funny that the most people that work on fish farms are really good people, really decent people. And they hate to think that they're having a negative impact on environments. So this is kind of going back to the impacts yeah. on on the wild. They hate to think about it. And I think maybe some of them are in denial. Because most people think they're good people, don't they? Mm. It's just, it's a natural human, you know, you think you, you justify what you're doing. Uh, and you hate to think that there's any negative impacts on it. So um, I... The, the way things currently are, I couldn't really recommend anyone to go into aquaculture. <laughs> Why don't you become going to get fishing and get yeah, hunting? Just go fishing instead. Go fishing instead. Try and get, get a job as a ghillie. Yeah. Or a, you know, There's a, a lifestyle manager. choice There's for a live, you. Uh-huh. It's far more rewarding. <laughs> you. You, you are doing good. <laughs> With
1: um, What is your uh, sort of crystal ball vision for the future for salmon and sea trout here in Scotland? Because we talk... You know, a lot of the stuff we see is very negative. It, 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 can, it It's very easy to just feel like it's a bit of a lost cause. And yet, I know, like you, there are lots of people like you doing great work around the country mm-hmm. um, to help protect that. Yeah. What is the future for it?
3: I think the future's good, actually. I really do. I think the rivers are improving immeasurably. If you look at all the work that's been done, a lot of the focus that's been done is coming from Scottish Government all the way down through to improve the water water quality. So if you look at the state of the fresh water of the rivers, yes, there's what we can do and we are trying to do it. It's difficult to get funding, but we're trying. Where we are just now on the River North Esk it is in fantastic condition, fresh water. Yeah. It is basically a fish-producing machine. Mm-hmm. I've, I mean, it is the most productive river in Scotland. Which one, sorry? The, the North, North Esk. Esk. North Esk, is yeah. It's the most productive river in Scotland.
1: It's overtaken all the
2: big
0: ones. I yeah. No. So I it, knew it was doing well, but I didn't realise <laughs> yeah. it was the, I mean, it's, the most... it's
3: short, yeah. but pound for pound, it produces... It, it has the targets, the government has given it an egg target of something like 8.3 eggs per square metre, which is the highest in Scotland. So and it's wow. it's in really good condition. There's things we could do to make it better. There's some of the, when it goes through farmland or previously straightened sections, we could re-meander or we could plant more trees in the upland area. I think as far as the fish populations, so the main thing affecting salmon populations just now and sea trout is what's happening out at sea. And we're in part of a natural cycle just now. What the the really low densities, the really low poor marine survival rates we're seeing now happened about a hundred years ago, and it happens every hundred years or so. It seems it's on so a natural cycle. So we're we're at the bottom. I think so we are. So you think just that's now.
1: compounding other issues that we're
3: having? I think there are other issues. So certainly, there's never been as much um, human um, impacts as yeah. there are just now. But there's also other things like. Um, like seal populations are on the increase they'll have an, a bit of an impact on salmon they'll be catching salmon as they come back I think the um, big sea fisheries, you know these big factory ships out at yeah. sea, yes. they must be having an impact. They have to. It's seems... colossal <laughs> Yeah, It's and not
1: if, conceivable that they're not having yeah. but...
3: an impact. And I think the, the increase in the macro fishery because mackerel and salmon tend to inhabit roughly the same part of the water column, so the mackerel fisheries, I think, must be having some impact on as salmon as well. As Com- in No, just getting caught in the nets. Oh, I see what you mean. But there is a competition. There is a. See, a, a, a Norwegian scientist has a. I've read that paper. A hypothesis: yeah. the overgrazing hypothesis, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, I think it needs to be tested.
1: Yeah, I was. I read it. It seemed interesting, but I wanted more to to know whether I really th- was buying into the yeah, idea.
3: The the problem with it is what do you do if it is true? Do <laughs> you fish more and then you catch more salmon as a bycatch? I don't know. It's a difficult... Yeah. It's, it's it's very... It's complicated, but there are other other things going on. So the climate in the North Atlantic is changing naturally. We know that because it's part of this this cycle that goes on, the North Atlantic Oscillation. I think Mark Billsby talked about mm-hmm. from the Atlantic Salmon Trust. Um. So what we're seeing kind of follows predictions um, and then hopefully we're at the bottom and then over the next few years things will gradually start to improve. I, I genuinely think we will see an improvement. It will get better. I think we need to be looking after the fish a lot more or looking after keep looking after the freshwater environment. Keep that going and maybe extend the efforts for plant. We need to plant lots of trees Hmm. on riverbanks that's one of the big big things for the future yeah Yeah. so we do that now in 50 years it'll be much better
1: it's uh, it is is important to emphasise that we have as a as a country come on leaps and bounds when it comes to our river systems and the quality of that because you don't have to turn the clock back that many decades and we were in a pretty dire state in a lot of rivers yeah I mean, there's even fish that run up the Thames now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: exactly. And, that, and was, that was just a giant and sewer dolphins. before.
1: Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, I mean, Glasgow as well. I mean, most of the rivers that had, were anywhere near Glasgow yeah. were basically polluted and disgusting before. And I think they're in a fairly deharved well, situation. People fish on them again. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. They certainly do. And um, when the I was brought up, it was one of the tributaries of the of of the Clyde mm. um, and we never saw sea trout or salmon. We saw lots of brown trout yeah. but now there are sea trout and salmon running up those areas it shows yeah. you. and so it has improved and I suppose one of the classics is starting from just about scratch is the Tyne, isn't it and, yeah. in uh, near Newcastle that you know, that's clean up the habitat clean up the water open up the habitat and then the fish come back and mm. it's just absolutely incredible.
1: Sea trout's a slightly different discussion to mm. the, uh, the salmon in terms of what's happening to them at sea because so, most my understanding of sea trout is that once they go back to sea, they're basically hugging around our coastline mm-hmm. in terms of feeding. Before they're coming back into our river, they're not. They don't have this vast migratory pool that that salmon do. So the impacts on them must be different then, or the reasons we're not seeing them. Yeah, they they are. I think the
3: uh, they're more susceptible to changes in in feeding at sea. See, this is what so, I was, yeah. Yeah, so the, the last big, big run that we had was, what, 2011? Did
1: that coincide which, with the big sandy all year?
3: It, it, With the Yes, but it probably coincided, it also coincided with the salmon. The salmon and the sea trout populations, the survival was huge in the marine environment. Hmm. Like, I don't know what happened that year. That was the last big year that we really had. I think sea trout, because they tend to spawn in smaller burns, more of them have been straightened. And I think they're suffering more from habitat degradation in the freshwater environment that's than maybe salmon are. Salmon tend to like the bigger rivers better and they're in a better mm. condition than these small little tributaries that are now basically drainage ditches. Yeah. And there's not much habitat in there. So I think that's part of it, but probably the big thing is feeding at sea. Mm. Um, so whether we're seeing the same number of finnick, which is you know just a, a young sea trout, we're not really seeing as many of them. No. Maybe as we used I mean, to. even do, in, even be in my me.
1: lifetime, I remember seeing a lot of finnick yeah. when I was in early teens. Yeah, you know, up um, uh, by the the mm-hmm. and the Don. Yeah, but not so much anymore.
3: No, and, and I mean, I don't know if if we're seeing. So as I said earlier about the cormorants coming inland to feed. Mm. They're mainly marine animals. I wonder if that's you know two sides of the same coin of the the sea trout survival isn't great because there aren't enough there isn't enough feeding out at sea. Um, but sand eels seem to be the basis of an awful lot of our food chains. Yeah, it does. But, you well, you know, look at the, the, the puffin and, reduction in
1: correct. population has a, mainly to do with sand eels yeah. because that's what they need, even though if they can eat other things when it comes to feeding their young, they need, to, Absolutely. They need that source of sand eels, the, the high density yeah. of biomass of sand eels. And I, I, there was a paper I read years ago, probably 10 years ago, that were, was all about that correlation between sand eel uh, fluctuations and water temperature, actually, and how sand eels had moved, the populations had moved further north, where it was slightly cooler water, okay. and uh, the puffins following them and then not breeding in certain years when they couldn't source the sand eels. And I'd wondered whether there was also a correlation between sea trout. If you could tie sea trout into the same study they did, but I never followed up on it. But it seemed interesting at the time because the food source was very similar.
3: It is, and I think I think <coughs> sand eels is the basis of the sea trout populations. And you speak to certain of my colleagues in, in other areas, and they're convinced this is this is the reason. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's down, down to it's down to coastal feeding, and well, I, and I think that.
1: At least we're not hoovering up sand eels to make fertilizer anymore because we used to do that, didn't we?
3: We are, but there's also. Um, yeah, it was the, the Dutch the netherlands used to do that. Uh, but I think there's there's other things. There's an awful lot more mobile fishing gear going on where we're raking the, the, the seabed mm. for longestines and, mm. and other species. The scallops. and Scallops. Yeah, well scallops, they tend to can dredge for scallops I and mean, that's even worse. that goes in these. I've, se- I've seen bit. it. Yeah. I've seen
0: it when I've been underwater. There's yeah. nothing living once they dredge a... Yeah. Nothing. It's, it's like
1: a desert. It's amazing that we yeah. can allow that to
0: still happen. Actually, I, I'm dredging for staggered. scallops, and that and that's why the like the the hand dive scallops are the, mo- the most friendly yeah. for the environment because they're not affecting well, the seabed. They're, sea they're bed. actually selected, they're and, so they they're selected and they then don't affect. They're selected, and then they go up. I've been on scallop beds on the west coast loads, and when you land on one, it's amazing because they all they all try and swim away from you. It's <laughs> incredible to see, but when you see the dredging channels. Yeah, Wait, it is. You I mean you see the sand's been pushed slightly. It's like a rake, a giant rake, and it's just gone. Everything is dead.
3: Yeah, and it's the same with the 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 mobile gear for the, the Longestines, which is essentially raking the bottom against creels. Yeah, and there's an awful lot of gear conflict, and it happens in the East Coast as well as the West Coast, and it's uh, very very complicated. And you're dealing with people's livelihoods, and it's uh, yeah, it's a difficult situation. But I think if I had my choice, I wouldn't have any mobile gear. I mean, the, the Victorians banned it. <laughs> the, the Victorians knew it was so damaging that they said, okay, you're not allowed to do that within three miles of the, the coast. And uh, and then it all changed in the 1980s, I think it was, 83. Wow,
1: learn from history. <laughs> yeah. Wow, to make you're better thought, decisions so. for the future.
3: Well, we can do it now because it was the EU, it was the reason... <laughs> what, that they That was why it was opened up again? The reason it was opened up, as I understand it, was... That uh, Spanish, French, and Irish ships started coming in fishing when we joined the Common Fisheries ah. Policy, although the Scottish boats weren't allowed to do it. And they said the, this the, isn't fair. So, uh-huh, so instead of banning the other boats, we just allowed the Scottish boats to fish in those areas now. And there's very little. If you look at the Clyde, for example, it's the whole biomass, the whole ecosystem has changed. It's switched from cod and haddock to whiting. And now they're fishing for brown shrimp in the Clyde, which is just crazy.
1: We, we just, we cannot afford to make the same mistakes we made in the past because we're going to make enough of enough new mistakes in the future. Yeah. We
3: can't repeat old mistakes. I know. Well, we haven't even fixed these ones no, yet. Exactly. We know it's damaging. Yeah. We know it's harmful. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think the benefits of going back, they'd be, you know, banning these mobile gear. You'd have you'd potentially more employment. You know, there's a, the Sustainable Inshore Fisheries Trust made a very good case for economic benefits from stopping all this mobile gear, but mm. um, unfortunately, vested interests won out.
1: As is often the case. As is often the case. Craig, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thanks for taking the time to come into the office
0: today. You're welcome. Um, fun.
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm. What I'm wondering is when we're going to have our um, trusty month, uh, yearly walkout on one of the rivers, because I seem to miss <laughs> them every year.
3: We can try and do it in June. We'll wait for a nicer, wait for a bit warmer weather, uh, I think. Early June. Early June. And June. <laughs> All right, next week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're right. Next week. <laughs> it's yeah. June next week. It's been
1: great
0: to have you and Thanks very much for your time. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing more shows in our new room, our new podcast room in the future and have some more guests on. Oh, and this is why you li- you stay to the end. In an, uh, only two weeks' time, we are flying to London. I was just about to mention yeah. I wasn't sure if you'd yeah. remember. That. We are flying to London to go and interview Levison Wood. And if you don't know who Levison Wood is, go Google him and buy one of his books, watch some of his TV series. All, all his stuff is, he's got TV series and he's got books on Audible so you can listen to them and he also has the physical books as well. Modern day adventure oh, it's and explorer. It's insane what he's it, done. It,
1: do you know what? I mean he is well known, but he deserves to be a lot more well known yeah. than
0: he is. His his books are incredibly uh one They're very honest. Honest I would say honest, entertaining, and factual and a lot of research has gone oh, into You his will book. learn a lot so, by listening to them or reading them. Yes, yeah, so he's evidently done a lot of research afterwards. So uh the ones I've got Walking the Himalayas, Walking the Nile Walking the Andes—is that one? I don't know, maybe that's something else. Anyway, that is definitely two. There's of a it. lot of walking. There's. Walk, there's <laughs> of, I'm, I'm going to Google it while we're we're on yeah. uh, so, on here. So we
1: actually got. Uh, so he's got a new uh, TV series coming out, which we'll tell you about. We're actually getting being sent some of the programs to watch ahead of. It being released and ahead of us doing the podcast uh, interview with him, so as soon as we've watched them, we can tell you a little bit about them. But we got contacted by Discovery Channel, who are trying to, pr- uh, who are promoting this new series with him, uh, to see if he would come, if we would have him on the podcast. And we didn't require any convincing
0: <laughs> because we already knew exactly who he was. We were already reading um, his books and, and a big on, fan, so. on, on the way to the. There and back from the Northern Shooting Show, we were listening to one of his books yeah, without without actually knowing that we yeah. were going to be... One of those weird coincidences. Really weird coincidences. And we actually said, you know what? He would be really cool to get on the show. And uh, lo and behold, we were going to have him on. It's happening. Yeah. Have you found it? Um, okay, so Walking the Americas, that's the one I was thinking of. Uh, walking the Himalayas, Walking the Nile, and then uh, there's one just called Arabia uh so yeah he has a really good instagram account as well leveson wood he does yeah the walking the niles insane it isn't it is just crazy i and it's the thing that kind of upsets me with the world is there's so much of the world that you can go and see but it's people that stop you seeing it not not anything else it is people like that was the difference between if you
1: haven't heard it uh we interviewed ed stafford um i don't know six months ago yeah and he he was the first man to walk the amazon from source to sea yeah and most there was a little bit of human issue in there as well with the drug trafficking but most of it was just a feat of endurance <laughs> and being able to just push on and, and cope with the environment but in Levison woods uh journey down the nile it was people that were the issue Yes, oh, and and uh, they were also they were also amazing. Um, but where he had problems, it was very often caused by people in politics. Yes, which, which is, is a not shame. not not anything kind of uh, not 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 all the rest of the natural environment that <laughs>
0: excludes people. Yeah, you think, oh, uh, when I, I need to walk across Africa, I'll uh, be careful of, that. of the lions, yeah, of the, and the lions, of, and no, and no, and no, no, be careful of people with guns, which is obviously a thing you do need to be careful yeah. of. But it's yeah, it's people with um, desperate people.
1: Yeah. That's
0: what But we cannot wait to go down and interview him.
1: I think it's on the 11th we're interviewing him in London.
0: Yeah, not long now. With that, join us in potentially a week's time, but we'll see how that goes. If not, it will definitely be in two weeks' time. If you're new to the show and you want to discover different ways to listen, there's many ways to listen. In fact, only last week. In fact, it was one of our friends asked the best way to listen because they had an Android phone and we um, sent them towards uh, Stitcher. Mm -hmm. So that worked for them. If not, Spotify and iTunes, they're the big ones. And uh, if you need any more information about us or the show or anything else that's going on or the shop or whatever, it is all the W's, the pacebrothers.com And the email address, once again, is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com.